Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef podcast. Today's guest is the co-author of Consciousness in a Nutshell. His name is Jay Nelson. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Christian. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's an honor, always. Um, let's just jump straight into this, as we always do. In your own words, how do you define consciousness? I got a, a one-liner for consciousness. Consciousness is a dance between perception and memory. That's my mm-hmm. one-liner on consciousness. And what I like about that is that it's it's short enough to fit on a t-shirt, right? <laughs> but <laughs> always thinking about the marketing. <laughs> I gotta think ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like, you know, in in so much in science, like we crave those sorts of equations that can explain life and fit on a t-shirt, like EMC or sorry, E equals MC squared. Like that's beautiful. And it explains so much fits on a t-shirt, right? But like, you know, then you have some problems like consciousness or light, which can't really fit on a t-shirt because light is both a particle and a wave, you know? So it's like consciousness isn't just one thing. And so, but I like this definition because it's, it gets you to think about, you know, the idea that perception is, is tied into consciousness and that perception and existence are tied in together as well. So. You mentioned dreams in that. I'd like to expand on that a little bit because I've always kind of been fascinated by the concept. I'm sure many of us are in the context of consciousness. What do you make of dreams? What do you think their purpose are? Are they real? Is there an element of reality in them? Are they just our mind kind of exploring a lot of different things? Because I can tell you this before Mm -hmm. you answer there have been experiences in my life where I have, for example, dreamt the future. Mm. And now people will think, what are you talking about, Christian? That's impossible. Well, allow me to elaborate. Okay. When I say that I've dreamt the future, what I mean is it's kind of like a feeling of deja vu where I'll dream something that I can't make sense of because obviously it hasn't happened yet. So I'm like, what? I'll give you a good example. There was uh, a dream that I had where years prior where I was dreaming that I was in my future college class and I could vaguely make out people, but that was it. Just a classroom, computers, a few people. Fast forward to when it actually happens, it hit me. And at this point I'd had previous experiences like this. So I was kind of fully aware that, okay, what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling right now is kind of like reverse deja vu. Um, but there's something in there and that comes from a dream. And of course, bringing it back to what I wanted to ask you is, well, that's based in reality. That's based in something that hasn't happened yet, but then did happen, which Mm -hmm. kind of begs the question, well, what exactly are dreams then? What do you make of dreams? Well, I think the greatest theory about why we dream is the idea that, um, the subconscious or the unconscious is trying to communicate with the conscious self through dreams in a way that the it's like they're it's the unconscious is trying to explain something or communicate something that the conscious self either hasn't realized or is refusing to realize is willfully ignorant of and so we dream about things often after you know emotional events and that sort of thing like after we learn something we'll dream more like we'll rem more um but, you know, for me, so like you, you asked the question, are dreams real? Well, you know, I mean, you experience them. There's 
an element of realness to the experience of a dream. And when we talk about consciousness at the level of perception, you know, the only difference between this rich visual experience you're having right now and a dream is 5% retinal data coming in. So I'll unpack that for a second. So like, you know, vision, you don't see with your eyes, you see with your brain, more specifically, you see with what we call the internal model. So your eyes are taking in, you know, information. Um, it's uh, each eye is capturing like a two-dimensional image. So they're like two-dimensional cameras. And so your eyes moving around 180 times a second, each one. So you got to imagine you're taking about 180 two-dimensional snapshots every single minute, and you're sending it back into the brain to the occipital lobe for, uh, you know, to process and stitch all this information into a two and a half D sketch or a three-dimensional internal model that you then perceive. Right. But this information coming in is just raw two-dimensional image that is different from the right. The right eye is different than the left eye. This is called binocular vision. This is how we're able to, you know, perceive depth perception. You probably already know this, but um, I guess what all this gets to is that, you know, at the level of initial detection, because vision is very hierarchical, there's five layers, I believe. Um, and at V1, there are more top-down connections than there are bottom-up connections coming from the retinas. So the amount of connection, the amount of fibers that are connected from the retina is about 5% of your entire visual stream. So if you're dreaming, you have this rich visual experience like you had, you know, you're in that uh, lecture hall and uh, it felt very, very real. So that's what your brain can do on its own, right? It doesn't need any help from the senses, but if it has a little bit of retinal data coming in, then you have this experience we're having right now, which is, I mean, it feels sometimes the same as dreaming, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Um, oh my gosh. I always say this, but I've got about a thousand million questions right now. It's, oh, just, cool. <laughs> it's, just, it's just how my mind works in conversations like this. I just get buzzed and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, there's so much to discuss. Right there. You said, does this feel real? Um, or maybe does it feel like a dream? Yes, often. Um, weirdly, over the last 10 years or more, I've had these distinct moments where, <laughs> and I know it's like at this point, there's almost like negative connotations about it, this idea of being in the matrix, right? Now, oh, before right. you go crazy and go like, oh no, he's, he's been listening to too much Sandu Tate. Chill. What I'm talking about is <laughs> everyone. <laughs> everyone's had a moment where you just kind of, you're just like in your everyday life and suddenly you're like, this doesn't feel real. But then your mind goes, well, what is real? What do I understand to be real? And you do things like you pinch yourself and you feel it. But then you think about the, the fact that your brain is telling you to feel that. But then what is instructing the brain? And then this is how my mind works. I end up like just asking myself 50, 100 questions and then I drive myself crazy. But um, what one thing I wanted to mention was that I'm sure you've been keeping up with like AI and AI art lately and just kind of like how it's going, right? Have you seen some of the images that it's sort of generating right now where it's at, at this stage? I have seen some of them, not all of them, of course, but um, what I've seen is is blowing my mind. Like it's it's advancing way faster than we thought. I mean, they were talking about it years ago and it's just like, I can't believe it's at the level it is right now. So yeah. it's truly terrifying. Um, <laughs> but the reason I bring it up is that many times when I look at these AI art, pictures images now it depends who's prompting it what system is being used some are like really really advanced and as you said they're, they're really realistic right some of them are less so and mm. i feel they're much like dreams because in mm. dreams 
especially when you dream about someone that you know or you recognize, it never quite looks like that person. Mm-hmm. For example, I had a dream the other night. Now, I often don't remember my dreams. Um, I used to dream a lot where I remembered a lot when I was younger, but these days, not so much. And I found that mm-hmm. quite interesting. I wonder why my, my brain is a lot more active these days. Uh, I've, I'm educating myself more. I'm trying to expand my mind more. I, I don't take drugs or anything like that. So my pathways, okay. if you like, are quite clear you know so i'm open to it but at the same time i don't know that that's how it works you know i'm ignorant to that in that sense but i had this dream the other night and it's uh it's a very strange one it's like um i'm in a playground in a what well, i'm in a building i'm in a building kind of like an old old-fashioned school building with a bunch of random people and the building sets on fire and we have to quickly get out of uh this lobby area that we seem to be congregating in and I'm in my dream, I, I realized like, you know, everyone's going, shout, get out, get out, get out. And it's the classic, leave your stuff behind. And I'm like, I'm not leaving my stuff behind. And I'm trying to like grab all the stuff, mm-hmm. but it's just a, it's really like realistically, come on, Christian, like just get out of the building. <laughs> so I run out and then I realize one of our friends is not there. And I traverse this building trying to find him. And then I find him somewhere else, building still on fire. I can smell the smoke in the dream. This was really interesting from a like, kind of wow. from a visual uh, and and not visual perspective, uh, sensory perspective. It was interesting to be able to smell within a dream. That's new for me. I've never had that. Um, right. The dream. The dream is nuts. The dream doesn't make any sense anyway. But what you said earlier about how it's the subconscious trying to communicate with the consciousness. Mm but the consciousness has to recognize what the dream is trying to tell us. I often kind of dismiss it as like, okay, this is anxiety. Um, Often if I haven't slept very well, or back when I used to drink, for example, years ago, um, I would notice I'd be dreaming a lot more, but that was because my body was imbalanced. You know, there's a chemical reaction there. There's a REM rebound. Yeah. Yeah. Your body reacts, you know, you're, you're not, you're not, it, to be honest, it happens even when I, when I when I don't sleep properly. Now it happens, um, and I think it's kind of like your body re- readjusting, but it's it seems to be a lot more active. But it's been scientifically proven that we we do always dream, even if we don't remember our dreams, we do always dream. So <laughs> I guess our subconscious is always trying to tell us something, but whether or not we pick up on that is is another story. But that that is the point. Yeah. Like, you know, even in our waking life, you know, which what you know, like we have to put we have to quant uh, quantize this a little bit. Um, So, you know, like every single second, your body is streaming in 11 million bits of information, like through all five of your sense organs. But the conscious self can only, you know, handle about 200 bits every single second. So you you have this humongous bottleneck, right? We're like a really crappy old computer with like floppy disks. (laughs) sorry yeah no that's right because you got 11 million bits getting funneled down to 200 you know and these are just um estimations and you'll find different estimations that people give but uh we had to stick to one and that's the estimation that we give and it's i mean it's informative about what the what the architecture of consciousness looks like because the unconscious is driving the show 99 or sorry 95 to 99 percent of all your cognition is unconscious so you know really consciousness is like this tiny tip of the iceberg up here and the subconscious and the unconscious or these are interchangeable terms really uh is is feeding you a bunch of 
perceptions, I'm sorry, a bunch of sensations that then graduate to the level of perception, but not all of them do. Most of them don't, right? 99.9% .9 of all sensory information coming in is just tossed out by the wayside. You don't remember what the, uh, you know, cashier's eye color of her eyes was last night. Like you were there, you attended, but like it's, it, you know, it's gone now. So something fascinating about that though, is the fact that like how your brain determines what to remember and what not to remember. I feel like a lot of a lot of it is automatic, as you said. Like it, your brain in instantly recognizes, "Wow, we don't need to remember that. That's not going to be important for the narrative later." But then, what's interesting is if you get pressed for that information. Now, let's say a crime commit was committed at that particular point in time, and your mind is having to go back and, and acquire that information. It's hazy because you know your brain has been told not to remember that. But then when there are moments that you do want to remember, you often will remember them vividly, but not always, you know, I, like I've, I've realized about myself. I'm very lucky with this, uh, this memory I have touch wood that I keep it. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but when I talk to other people, I'm like, Hey, do you remember this? And I'd start recounting all the details and they're like, no. And I'm like, but it wasn't that long ago. And I remember all of this, but then the caveat to that is that my short term is shit pardon my language, but awful. Really? Yeah, oh, truly dreadful. I can tell oh. you what happened 10 years ago in extreme detail, but I couldn't tell you what I had for lunch yesterday. Who knows? That's so strange. <laughs> but it, it just goes to, you know, it speaks to, and we talk about this in the book too, it's like the compartmentalized nature of consciousness because there's this Brit named Clive Waring. Do you know about him? I don't. Okay. So this is a guy, he worked for the BBC. He was a conductor. He used to, you know, conduct orchestras inside like the most prestigious churches in England. Um, and then in 1985, he contracts herp herpes encephalitis. So wow. normally the herpes virus doesn't cross the, the blood brain barrier and enter the brain, but it did in this rare instance and caused massive brain swelling. So, you know, we have, um, you've probably heard of the hippocampus before. Mm -hmm. So we have a hippocampus on our left hemisphere and a hippocampus on our right hemisphere. And both his hippocampi were basically destroyed through this swelling. So what ended up happening was, if you've seen the movie Memento, he, like the movie Memento was slightly based on him and people like him because that, you know, that, you know, in the movie Memento, the guy couldn't, he suffers an accident and then he couldn't remember anything after that accident. So he remembers his, his life entirely fine up until like 33, he gets hit in the head. And then now he can't, because his hippocampus was destroyed, he can no longer form new memories. So Clyde Waring is like that, except he has an even worse form of memory. He can't recall anything that's ever happened to him in his entire life because both his hippocampus, hippocampi are destroyed. Okay. So not only is he like memento that he can't remember anything that, like he can't form new memories since 1985, but all the memories that happened to him up until 1985, he can't recall them. But the weird thing is, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, is that he still knows certain details. Like he knows he's married. He just can't recall getting down on one knee. He knows he worked for the BBC and that I got really sick, but he can't recall that, you know, what it was like. So he can barely just recognize his wife. But if you sit him down in front of an organ in front of the in, in one of the orchestra, I'm sorry, in front of in one of the churches he used to play, he can still improvise a beautiful piece of music like nothing happened. That's consciousness. That's memory right there.
theorizing yeah. on 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 the top of yeah. that as well is i feel like certain aspects of that might be muscle memory so him being able to still compose i'd wager that falls in that category that he he's he's not consciously thinking about it but his mind just remembers in some shape or form like okay this is not even remotely the same thing but um in my life I, there was a point where i was not doing anything creative for a long time and i hadn't like touched a guitar in a long 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 time and i tried to start playing something after maybe maybe like three four years of not playing but to recall something that i used to play all the time okay. and at first couldn't remember anything and then 10 minutes 20 minutes trying to remember trying to remember it begins to come back and then it's like it's like i don't know like riding a bike kind of you know you never forget yeah. but you you kind of it's a bit like wobbly it's like oh ooh, okay and then your body adjusts and then it's like you never stopped yeah and i wonder it's maybe it's the same principle where it's like the mind always remembers or maybe a better example would be gym um i've been training for the last year but i hadn't trained prior to that for a good two and a half years and the only thing that changed was obviously what I was able to lift. There was a significant deficit there where it was like, okay, I can't lift as heavy as I used to. That changed over the coming months, but I wasn't able to do it. But my mind did remember like how, what was the best form, how to do things, how to re react to certain things, you know? So the body remembers and uh, maybe, maybe it comes from like habit. Maybe, for instance, this particular gentleman being able to remember his wife or being able to remember being married to this person comes from like a sense of familiarity. Like maybe it comes from remembering the smell or somehow like there's certain aspects that like kind of makes the person recognize without knowing. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, kind of like, for example, um, th this principle of being able to distinguish if someone is related to you if you've never met them before mm. and being like naturally repulsed because it's like there's something oh. in there you know what i'm saying like there's something in there that prevents you from doing it they, they kind of explore this in a tongue-in-cheek way in um back to the future famously where he his mom tries to kiss him and then it's like oh it's like kissing my brother but it's like there's actually oh, right. a scientific <laughs> thing there there's something there that exists it's, it's kind of like a fail safe to prevent that from happening um says, yeah well, yeah, yeah, but it's 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 like genetics. It's like it doesn't want you to reproduce with your family because obviously yeah. that would be catastrophic later on, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah. One thing I wanted to to dive right into was the different states of consciousness that you discuss. So, firstly, let's explore what is an ordinary state of consciousness. I'm intrigued by this. Like, what what constitutes ordinary consciousness? Well, actually, would it be okay to pick up on a couple points you just mentioned? Yes, please. Okay, we can, so you we can circle back. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, please do. Because um, that's really important too. But um, like what you were talking about, like when it comes to how Clive is still able to play the piano, mm -hmm. how you were able to still, you know, pick up the guitar. And it took a little bit of time to get this back. But, you know, in the back of your brain, you have a, a little a little brain, literally, that's yeah. Latin cerebellum. What are you trying to say? Um, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> But three, you know, we have 86 billion neurons in our head and three quarters of them exist in the cerebellum. And that is where all your procedural memory takes place. So, you know, I love to snowboard. 
you love to, um, you know, like uh, play guitar and that sort of thing. So like, you know, dancing, diving, um, anything that has to be like a bunch of like riding a bicycle. Um, these are memories that are stored in procedural memory. So they're stored in the cerebellum. And this is one of the last brain regions to deteriorate in people who have neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. So you'll notice they never really forget how to ride a bike because it doesn't attack the cerebellum. What it attacks first is the hippocampus, which is your ability to um, bust apart details and combine them in a new way to create a new scene. So because Clive and, you know, he's called the man with the seven second memory, by the way, um, because he has no functioning hippocampi, he can't recall the details of his past life and then, you know, bust them apart and then recombine them to create a future. So when you ask him to, you know, be like, what does the future look like to you? People and other people like him, like I think HM, um, they'll say the future looks like a big blankness because they can't picture it. They, you know, so memory is really about it's less about the past as much as it's about the future because memory is adaptive, evolutionarily, evolutionarily adaptive in the sense that it's trying to help us figure out the best ways of acting in the future. So that's why you remember the past is so you can reconstruct new environments and uh, survive better. On top of that as well, like, do you know or do you have a theory for perhaps how a person in in a predicament such as that is able to just remember basic things like i don't know what's my name or how to walk or things like that like i know we've obviously explored muscle memory and stuff like that but there, there's other bits of information that seemingly would be somewhat impossible to retain and yet the person can i mean sometimes you see it in movies they kind of tuck in cheek go like oh what's my name what's this what's that but then they still understand how to do certain things, how to reverberate, maybe the fact that they, um, again, I keep giving examples of things that like would come from muscle memory. Like the example I was going to give was knowing where home is, but then again, your mind would pick up on some sort of routine, I suppose. There's, there's an element of that in there, but right. how do you reckon the mind sort of retains these particular details in the, in a, in an instance where obviously it can't create new memory or retain old memories. So the way we try to explain that in the book is like, you know, have you ever seen someone like, you know, an employee you haven't worked with in like three jobs and then you see them in a foreign city and you're like, I know this person. Now, how do I know this person? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you recognize them immediately. You know that you know them. You just can't think of it. And then it might take three days to be like, Laura, that was Laura. You know, like what just happened there? Okay, so let's let's like tease this apart real quick. So there is a part of your brain, and we call this metacognition, which is thinking about thinking, which knows what the brain knows without having to access the file directly. So like, you know, I could be like talking about like one of my favorite movies, like The Matrix, and then be like the lead, the lead actress. I don't remember her name right now, but I'll get back to you, right? So it's like, it's Carrie Ann Moss. But like for a second, it's like, you know that I know the information, but it might take a second for, you know, the unconscious self to like, like go in the Dewey decimal system, find the file card. Here it is. Her name's Carrie Ann Moss because the name is stored in a different place than just the raw information. And so in, in a way that your brain has indexed what it knows, so you're like, I know that I know it. I know that I know it. I know that I've seen her before. And so it's, it's the same way where it's like, you know, I know that you're my wife in some way, like when I'm talking about Clyde Waring, like, you know, he's got metadata but he doesn't have any access to the actual file cards. 
So that's what he's got, just like impressions, which is a different type of memory and stored in a different area, apparently, because, I mean, that's just, you know, like one of the ideas is it's like, we don't understand memory very well because we just like, I mean, you lose certain parts of your brain and you lose certain memories and yeah, that's that. <laughs> I've got two examples of this actually that happened to okay. me in the last year or two. And it's, 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 it's intriguing because the first one was exactly what you just laid out there where it's like the brain trying to like go back and understand like well where do i know this person from well where exactly can i find this information and mm -hmm. uh I, at the time i was working a bar job and this guy came in and i looked at him and i was like i know you and i said that to him i was like i know you but i don't I know where i know you from and then i and then obviously you try you start asking questions you're like what's your name uh-huh did you ever work here? Uh -huh. Oh, you did. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, you worked here. Ah, hmm. Ah, ah. And then it yeah. was like that. Yeah. Um, and then there was another instance where my brain failed me completely. And then I just felt quite silly afterwards. So I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was, um, I was in the city. I, I live in Manchester in the UK and um, I'm walking down the street and this guy comes out of a TGF Fridays and I'm just looking at him and he's staring at me and I'm staring at him. I'm like, oh, where do I know you from? Why do I, I I know you? Like I feel, but I thought I knew him. Like I know him from my life. Like I I've met him before, but I don't know. And in the end, I was like, eh, I I don't know. And I just kept walking. And he but he looked really uncomfortable. Later on, I'm watching some YouTube videos of some of my favorite creators, and I see him on there, and I'm like, okay, oh, I know you from this. And then that would also explain why he felt awkward because in his mind, it's like, oh no. Is that like a crazy fan is going to like strangle me or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, it's interesting, like the, the way the brain does that and um, almost like compartmentalizes it. But that ability to recall is interesting because sometimes it's like really quick, like the example I gave, the, the former example, but then other times it's like it just doesn't happen for you and you have to kind of just relent and, and give it up and be like, it's not going to happen. But I reckon that's based on the obscurity of the information so in that first instance that was a guy that i'd spent a lot of time working with and so the brain's more readily able to connect that and make the dots and be like no, no no we spent a long time around this person you should know this person but then the mm -hmm. second person i've maybe seen a handful of vids i couldn't even tell you his name right now like it's i just know i know the face the face is you know something i recognize and going back to one of the things i said earlier being able to recall like the details of an event that otherwise seem not noteworthy, like if it's a crime scene, in that in instances like that, I find it's more likely that you'll remember if if the person that they're asking about had a particularly distinctive face. Like mm -hmm. I remember walking down the street recently, and there was a guy just walk his energy was you know sometimes you look at people and you just know there's just a problem there like there's mm. you just know to walk away and mm. he was i was sitting down and he was walking towards us and sorry state of how things are um these days i thought maybe he might have a bomb or something uh, i wasn't oh. sure but it's 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 happened in manchester we had it one time in 2017 unfortunately and we have had it happen in the uk in more recent times it's just these considerations come to your mind sometimes sometimes it's, it's ridiculous and unfounded i think in this particular instance it was just a guy looking really creepy 
on a summer's day wearing like a long sleeve <laughs> jacket and it, it just but his, but his energy was off and maybe he was just an unhappy guy maybe that's just how he walked I don't know but one thing that struck me was that I immediately got up but it was like something from like the matrix where like you know like dealing with an NPC kind of thing like I think in his mind mm-hmm. it was like hmm why has this guy got up like I just suddenly got up as soon as he's walking towards me and I was looking at him staring at him and I walked away and I'm wearing like these black sunglasses which I've noticed makes people feel uncomfortable because they can't yeah. see your eyes so there's right. like a right there's like a disconnect there and they're like they want to see your eyes because that's a way to be able to there's like an anonymity weirdly even though it's covering one portion of your body and they can see the rest of you for some reason you can't really truly see a person unless you see their eyes weirdly mm. enough and that was the instance of, of that. And then I was walking down the street, I was getting away from him. And then I just decided to kind of be a bit like detective and walk home a similar route to him. I was going that way anyway. And I was just kind of observing him because he stood out like, like a bull in a China shop. Like he just stood out, like just amongst all the sea of people, he stood out and I was just observing this behavior. And I was thinking like, if this was like a crime investigation, I had to recall this information days later i'd be able to give a perfect description of him like, i can give a description now he had like blonde hair longish hair uh he was probably about six foot three long black jacket black jeans boots and a kind of slouch mm. but the only reason my point with this is that the only reason my i was able to really remember this is because he had such a distinctive look the more distinct right. the more the mind is able to remember if the person has quite a unremarkable look shall we say or just the kind of they this doesn't stand out in some way your body just doesn't remember or your mind doesn't remember then you're just less likely to recall and i just find that interesting that how the brain knows when to do that and how to make those decisions because you can train it to some extent i've noticed with, with certain elements you can do things like uh for example i'm i'm an actor i'm shooting actor so whenever i have to learn lines um i do the whole look cover right check thing and just kind of keep rinsing repeating and then get my mind familiar with it and then eventually i know it but i but i have to like remember using that method and then cue myself and then and it's, it's just a process you have to kind of keep repeating but that's mm-hmm. only one theory of, of recall it's like there's many ways to do it to train your brain to do that but I think my point with it is that you, you have to exercise it to do that. Um, but the brain does it automatically, as we've sort of outlined here. So I just find that kind of like fascinating. Um, any thoughts on that before I continue? <laughs> um, there was a lot there. Sorry. I No, 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 not at all. Um, well, I wanted to say something about the memory. Man, I totally blanked. <laughs> um, well, see, even that, like, why does the why does the mind do that? happens to me a lot in the podcast and sometimes i'll be able to recall the question i'll start yeah. talking and then I'll, the pieces will fill in and then the question will come back to me and other times it won't and it's just gone and yeah. i try to move on because there's a show to do but <laughs> so why does that happen is it stress is it the brain's just yeah. shit like <laughs> I think it's like too many browser tabs open and it doesn't know which one to chase. <laughs> so it just shuts down. It's like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> just I don't crashed. know. Brain you were going crashed. somewhere. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know where it went. <laughs> but yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, uh, when it comes to dreaming and stuff, one thing they they have discovered is that um, we tend to dream. I, I think I said this earlier. We tend to dream more after something that is like an emotionally charged event. And so emotionally charged events tend to get remembered more easily because, you know, it it behooves one to remember like the time you were almost in physical or emotional danger. And it's mm. important to also like, I guess, qualify that like the brain hardly makes a distinction between emotional pain and physical pain. You know, in both instances, you have the same hormone cortisol being released. So, you know, whether you're being, I don't know, stressed out by some sort of physical stressor, some actual physical bear is stressing you out, or you have post-traumatic stress disorder in which every little thing is causing your salience network in your brain, you know, your amygdala, your fear center to, you know, become hyperactive. And so when that is hyperactive, then other networks in the brain, like the default mode network or your, um, your prefrontal cortex can't be as active. So because these people are on uh, alert, you know, they're so scared about what's happening. They can't stay present and grounded in the, in, in the here and now. And so, you know, it affects their life. It affects their body. You know, it affects their brain, Would something that... they, yeah, go on. No, sorry. I interrupted. Not at all. What are you going to say? I was going to say, um, with that specifically, is it because the mind is, sorry, the situation has recreated a similar feeling of what the person felt in that particular moment is almost like the brain remembering and because the brain protected you during when it happened like you went into shock or whatever then you're it's kind of like inadvertently putting you into sh into shock again because it thinks that it's recreating that specific instance when it's not yeah so the brain has gotten um hyper yeah, hyperactive in one of the networks. And, you know, basically you have three big networks in your brain, the default mode network, you have the um, emotional salience network, and then um, another network will come to me in a second. Oh, the central executive network, which is like your prefrontal cortex. And so if you ever have some sort of um, psychopathology, odds are there's some sort of hyperactivity in one of your networks. So emotional salience network hyperactivity, that is going to cause like PTSD. If you have default mode network hyperactivity, so that's the neural substrates of the ego. If that is hyperactive, you likely have anxiety or depression. So that's interesting to know. Um, now you want your central executive network, the prefrontal cortex, the thing that's, that lets us stand back from the immediacy of experience, you know, to stand back from the world a little bit and to think about our actions and to think about the consequences of our, our word etc. Like, um, that's something that develops over the course of our lives and really comes online when we're about 25. But the difference between like a 17 year old and a 25 year old is that their brains are functionally different. They're a 17 year old's prefrontal cortex hasn't come online in the same way that a 25 year olds has. And so a 17 year old is operating more out of their amygdala. They're more emotionally reactive. Um, they're more likely to take risks and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So I think what all this speaks to and the book kind of like does try to get people to understand is that the brain and the and consciousness as its experience is this complex orchestra in which there are many networks and systems and teams of neurons firing in concert. And if they aren't working properly, then you get disorders. Um, so, you know, we talked about uh, recognizing faces earlier. Mm -hmm. 
Do you know, have you heard of uh, the fusiform gyrus and prosopagnosia? Haven't. There's an area in your brain um, that is basically your facial recognition software. It's called the fusiform gyrus. And this, you know, the the brain is so modular in some in some senses. It's so, you know, like highly adapted for specific purposes that if you lose this fusiform gyrus, you will have what's called prosopagnosia or facial blindness. So you cannot recognize people's faces anymore. What you have to do is, you know, like if I was talking to you and I have prosopagnosia, then I'd have to recognize you by your voice. Wow. Or maybe or maybe it's your hair because you have distinctive hair. Well, yeah. okay, 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 okay. Let's say um, that you've known this person for a long time, and let's okay. Let's say it's me and you, and okay. you have this condition, and I'm walking down the street, and we're about to meet up. If I don't recognize your face, then wouldn't I just walk past you? I mean, that's the sad thing about this. Like, and there's so many different disorders of consciousness that like lead you down this path of like, wow, it is so compartmentalized, like. Um, but yeah, like there was this girl I worked with, um, and she had facial blindness and it, 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 it made me upset because like, I want to be remembered <laughs> and like, she would never remember me. And I'm a guy we... to be remembered. Come on, damn it. <laughs> I did. Cause th at this point I was, I was in LA. I was trying to be an actor. I was trying to do stand up and, as well. And she was the girl who booked stand up comics. And I'm like, oh. you have facial blindness. You've told me this, like. You got to recognize our my voice, like, and that's how she got me, like, was eventually by my voice. But, you know, we use totally, I mean, tons of different cues, like the way you walk, your gait, you know, like your hair, like there's just mannerisms that I might do, like the way I hold my hands that just be like, oh, that's, that's Jay. I mean, that's how we're able to impersonate people, right? You just take right. a few of their, I can't copy your face, but I can take a few of your things. And then, you know what I mean? Like if you're impersonating someone. <laughs> no, it makes sense. It makes sense. I will say just on a side note, though, like yeah. her being a booker for like events and stuff, like surely it's really important to remember like the look of people. So you know to book them again. Like if she never remembers them by by face, then it's that's going to create a lot of problems. <laughs> it was so strange. Um, yeah. But yeah, luckily she ended up remembering me. But like, um, yeah, that's got to be such a weird moment to be like to know that you're talking to your mom but to like look at her face and be like this is a stranger's face you know like it's so strange there was another situation where like this guy had this dog but some he had some sort of weird situation in his brain that then like whenever he saw his dog he thought it was somebody else's dog because the part of his brain that would like light up with the emotion and connect that this is my dog, like wasn't happening. And so he's like, this is an imposter. This isn't his quote. This isn't Fifi. <laughs> it was Fifi, but like he had a disorder of consciousness. So it's just so strange. And if you take a bunch of these facts together, you start to understand that, you know, the idea that we promote in the book is layers of consciousness and they're stacked up and uh, kind of like Photoshop. And so, you know, a Photoshop creation something you might see on the front of a book is a layered construction. And if you untick the layers in Photoshop, you can see what each layer is contributing to this piece of artwork. But, you know, consciousness as it's experienced at this moment in time, let's say we both haven't had caffeine, no cigarettes. Mm. We just woke up. We're in a completely non I'm sorry, we're in a completely ordinary state of consciousness, which I like to call CS5 or consciousness 5.0. CS5 is just the abbreviation. Instead of saying baseline wakeful conscious state a thousand times in the book, we just call it CS5. So it's just like how you distinguish that somebody is unaltered versus altered.
and you can get altered just by, you know, you're on a hike and then you finally make it to the waterfall and you're talking to your friend. And then suddenly it's just like, you completely forgot what you were saying because what you're in front of is so beautiful. You, mm. You've lost your train of thought. You have now become one with the thing you're looking at, which is just awe. That's a state. That's a non-ordinary state of consciousness or an altered state of consciousness we call awe. And so we have tons of these things, you know, like you run for 15 minutes and you're going to be in runner's high. So anandamide, the, uh, our endocannabinoid, um, our endocannabinoid system will dump out, uh, anandamide after 15 minutes of running, you hug someone for over 15 seconds and you're going to get oxytocin. You know, your body's going to start releasing that, um, hormone for care bonding and, uh, just love and that sort of thing. So, um, it's easily to get it's easy to get knocked out of CS5. How about that? I was going to ask you just individually these questions, but since you've kind of already touched on it, I guess my only question oh. would be more so the, the the key defining difference between ordinary state of consciousness and non-ordinary state of consciousness is, as you said, to do with if your brain is altered or your experience is altered, be it through drugs, be it through activity, be it through something else. Um, that that's the key difference then. Yes. And, and so the way we try to, um, the way we attempt to explain what consciousness is, is by talking about transformations in consciousness. So we all, you know, kind of wake up in this baseline wakeful conscious state we call CS5. And then, you know, we start to alter it. Like I had coffee this morning. I like the altered state of consciousness called caffeinated. It's great. Um, and then like, you know, later on, I might take a puff of cannabis. That's another altered state of consciousness. But, you know, like, I mean, it just depends. I on might partake, you know. <laughs> I know, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> I just love that. Oh, sorry. Um, but it, it doesn't always have to be, you know, drugs. Like, because you I can... Get it. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> no, no, I, I get what you mean. Like, it, drugs, obviously, the most um, obvious example of, like, an altered state of consciousness. But as you gave an, an example of someone running that's not a general state of consciousness that someone's going to experience every waking moment that they'll only experience that if they push their body to the point where they start, you know, the endorphins get released, they get that kick, they start running, et cetera. Like that, the feeling I had when I came back from gym after I showered and I said, I felt a sense of euphoria. It doesn't last forever, but it, it lasts 10 minutes, let's say. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's a non-ordinary state of consciousness. And another good one that's, you know, uh, natural is a flow state. Um, have you heard I wanted to ask state? you about, yeah, I, wanted, oh, really? I, I think, I think I understand what this is. So instead of asking okay. you what are flow states, I'll instead ask, is this an example? And then you can either obliterate okay. me and give your synopsis, or you can just <laughs> say it as it is. So when I think of a flow state, I think of like when I've been working in a job, um, particularly in, in, in like custom service jobs I did in the past where, I get so familiar with the process of what I'm doing that it's almost like I'm on autopilot and I'm not really thinking about it. And the interesting thing is that everything goes in a flow state in, in a kind of like it connects easily. You feel like you don't even have to put as much pressure in because, uh, or sorry, effort in because everything is kind of going in a perfect state and it's just working. However, mm -hmm. one thing I did notice when this would happen when I was working in bars and stuff is that I was also very easily making mistakes in the flow state. So mm. I might feel that I'm perfectly getting everything right, but then I 
suddenly get a few drinks orders wrong and then I have to focus again and bring myself back into like regular consciousness. Am I right? Or am I talking in a load of ass? (laughs) Were you bartending? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah, bro. I've, I've dropped into flow states bartending too. Um, and yes, I would say you've had an, you've had an experience of a flow state. Now flow states can be in different levels of intensity. And usually I, uh, someone told me this recently, it's like, you know, you're in a flow state when you're out of it. You don't know it when you're in it because there is no metacognition. There is no thinking about thinking. There is no default mode network. That's your ego self. That ego self has been literally uh, damped, tamped down. So like um, the default mode network is obviously a network in your brain. That's the neural substance, the ego. But during a flow state, this starts to uh, get less blood flow going to the default mode network and less blood flow going to your prefrontal cortex. So you're more like jazz or improv um everything is <laughs> like the brain is lighting up in all sorts of different ways and there's not a lot of uh executive control or executive attention so it's more you know you've learned how to make this martini a thousand times before so you know you're just burning the you're instead of coding you're executing the code that's how i kind of think about it i think i've experienced this while playing music as well because yeah. when i'm quote unquote riffing or soloing or sometimes i'm just playing i'll often be playing something and i'm not even really playing anymore i'm just feeling the music and Mm -hmm. i feel like especially if you're like a lead guitar player or something i saw this there's a video doing the rounds at the moment of this really talented guitarist she's got like a big afro um i can't remember her name but she's amazing and there's a brilliant video of her just kind of looking up at the sky and smiling and just like riffing and riffing and riffing and riffing and just soloing and you know she's just feeling it. She's maybe in the flow state. She's, you know, she probably know like her. She knows roughly where she's playing, but like she's not thinking about it. Like you stop thinking about it, as you said. Yes. It's like the the mind is not connected to it, unless there's a bomb note, I guess. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> pay attention. <laughs> yeah, but that, I feel like yeah. that's a good example of it. Maybe exactly consciousness without self consciousness. And the guy who's pioneered the most um, research on this area called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, he has this TED talk and, you know, he, his his research suggests that people report being most happy when they're in flow, when their default mode network, aka their ego, isn't judging them with, you know, it, the inner critic isn't talking in their heads. That's gone. And what also happens during a flow state? You said time kind of goes like this, like time dilation because time again is calculated in the body and the brain it's calculated all over the prefrontal cortex but when that starts to wink out of existence then you start to get time dilation so for me writing like i might be sitting down you know and it feels like 30 minutes but then i look up and it's been three hours or if i'm snowboarding you know i'm going downhill i'm going fast you know flow states are literally peak states of performance um and then you know like but i remember (laughs) going down the mountain and it was on my birthday and like i hadn't fallen in like a really long time and i i catch my shadow and i'm like oh my god i'm in a flow state the next thing i slam head over heels like four times it was like one of the worst wipeouts i had in like a couple years but it was funny because i was totally fine and then i was like oh look how cool i look and then bam (laughs) oh it was like everything was fine until my conscious self got involved and then I caught an edge or something. And so it just goes to show you like the narrative self or the ego and time. These are luxuries in the brain because we don't have to have them. And when you have a flow state, 
like it's important to note that your body is dumping out all your feel-good neurotransmitters. So dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, anandamide, noradrenaline, and sometimes oxytocin. That's what a flow state gives you. And that's a completely normal altered state of consciousness that people can tap into if they're sufficiently skilled in something like, I don't know, poetry or figure skating or writing or, you know, like whatever happens to be snowboarding. So this, this is probably a dumb question. Um, cause I feel like you already answered it, but would sex be an example of a flow state? There's, there's, there's some evidence that people, yeah, you know, like, and the, there's this book called stealing fire by, uh, Stephen Kotler and Jamie wheel that would make the same argument where they're talking about flow popping up in all these different areas. And yet we call it different things. So stand up comedians call it when they're in the zone, you know, like basketball right. players call it being in the zone or in the zone of proximal development. Um, you know, uh, stand up comics call it being in the forever box because like, you know, they got that mic and then they drop into a flow state and then they riff on something they've never said before for 10 minutes straight. That would be a flow state. Right. Or, I mean, with actors, you get lost in a scene. You forget that, you know, you forget what your real name is for a moment. You're completely that character. And all that matters is who you're talking to in this emotional state that you're sharing with the audience you guys are merging into this hive mind. And so there's a thing called group flow. Uh, Victor Turner would call this communitas. And this happens sometimes during rallies, like political rallies. Uh, sadly, a good example and a horrible example would be the Trump administration and you know how Trump was able to get people. You know, There can be an evil side to flow. Um, Adolf Hitler would be another example of where you, know, you get people to merge yes. into this hive mind and then there, this would be Stephen Kotler's line, you don't want them to make meaning for you. So Trump and Hitler would like get people all riled up and then like, all right, Larry, let's go do this thing. That's And then they're not really thinking properly. So like flow states can be great, but they also can be bad too. I think it's important to say that. <laughs> no, this is this is an important point on this because obviously we, we've noticed that um, people act wildly different when part of a group versus singular mm. and society mocks those who are on their own you go to a, a restaurant or whatever and you see a person on their own society is mocks that they're like that's weird that's strange everyone should be in a group or a couple or something and maybe there is a degree of truth in that sometimes it's context dependent there's nothing wrong with you know going for a drink by yourself going for a meal i do all the time it's nice but um sometimes it's better <laughs> but uh at the same time in general, from a generalization perspective, we regard this behavior as abnormal and we favor group interactions, social, you know, sociability because we are social creatures. Now, bringing it back to the point, people do act differently. You take the same person and take them away from a group, they will react differently versus you throw them in a group sometimes. And, and there's different roles within that group as well. There's the the overly extroverted one who may even act the same way in, uh, sorry, on their own, but you know, if they're particularly extroverted. Uh, and then there's the other one who only comes out in that kind of state when they're actually part of that group. And you've got sort mm -hmm. of the quiet one who is like kind of there for the ride, but is not really like doing or saying much. Um, you might have someone that's particularly vocal, um, just throwing like, quick insults few lines here and there point is like 
everyone acts differently in those groups. And as you say, you lose your sense of self, you lose your sense of identity, you're more likely to do things that you wouldn't normally do because you're part of that group. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's, I don't know, it's, I feel like it's infiltrated you, like almost the ability to retain one's sense of self in a group situation is, I feel like you either have to have a particularly strong sense of character in self, or you have to be constantly self-aware of what's going on around you mm-hmm. and not let it infiltrate you. But that's, I don't know, that's easier said than done. Um, particularly if you're <laughs> quite easily swayed, I suppose. So when you see these rallies and you see people who have invited that in, they allow it to happen and then, then their mind sort of temporarily goes on this journey, you know? I've I've experienced it myself a few times where I've I've allowed something in and I start listening to it and maybe the thing starts convincing me, but you then forget like, hey, listen, you've got to read it back and make your own judgment on this. You can't just let this person steer the ship for you, you know? So I feel like that sense of self-awareness is key. You have to train that maybe. Right. But yeah, I mean, it can get lost and we, you spoke about anonymity earlier, but like, you know, you get in a crowd and like you think you're maybe a little bit anonymous and maybe you are, you know, like maybe this is a black block anarchy thing and like you're all wearing the same thing. So then you really do feel anonymous because you guys can, you know, one person can jump out from a crowd and smash a window and then disappear back into the crowd again. So it's like you would do things you normally would never do, but you're in a crowd. So it's okay. It isn't okay. But like, I guess, I guess we're speaking to the the idea that the myth of the individual, because we only know ourselves in relation to other people. Like, like I'm finding out who I am and talking to you, but like, if we were the same person, like literally the same person talking, like, I don't even know what we would talk about. Cause if we, we would, we would agree on everything, right. If we were the same person. So you know, like, it's good that I guess my point is like, we, we find ourselves in other people and, and like, you know, in these group settings, you can lose your individuality. And sometimes that's amazing. Like, I go to live concerts and live music so I can have that experience of communitas, get lost with the crowd, forget about myself and my worries and my bullshit for a second and just like make an artist's, I don't know, union, like with the artists on stage and understand their work. Like that's like my favorite experience on this planet. You don't need anything to have it except for live music and a crowd, but it's great. (laughs) No, I know what you mean. It's like a connection thing. It's like if there was... yeah. kind of like wi-fi <laughs> it's connecting yeah. everyone but you can't see it but you can feel it um well if you can feel wi-fi that's dodgy but some people say they can feel 5g i don't know anyway um, <laughs> but no um I know, I know exactly what you mean i felt that too and this is why i always kind of keep my mind open to all things because like if you just look at it from the scientific perspective often it discounts these things or it'll explain them in a very like basic way like well no it's clearly this you know so just ignore <laughs> all of that spiritual shit don't worry about that um but i keep my mind open to it all because yeah we we have these experiences that we can't explain these things that we that we question um that we can you know it's like the wind we know it exists we can't see it but we can feel it you know mm-hmm. and it's, there are these things you can't explain there are these things these experiences that they're there they're there our mind can't make heads or tails of them but they are there speaking of experiences you mentioned this sort of briefly earlier but i wanted to just explore it a little bit what are transcendent experiences okay so this is where we're going to play a little word game Mm. 
Tell me what these words have in common with each other. Oh, I'm shit at this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Heaven, Nirvana, Satori, Moksha, Liberation, Awakening, Being Awake, uh, Waking Up, uh, Feeling One with the Universe, Feeling One with Nature, uh, The Units of Experience, The Contemplative Experience, uh, The Transcendent or Mystical Type Experience, Ego Death, Ego Dissolution, near-death experiences these are all playing in the same soup right just sounds so, like you've been talking to josh <laughs> he's he, he finished my book recently so you know like now you're I making mean, me feel bad now <laughs> oh no no i'm sorry sorry hey, i'm read sure. it i'm it <laughs> the audiobook's coming out soon and i know that's like an easier route for a lot of people like, i will I read mean, it I, I will read it i'm getting back into reading because so, i normally read for research purposes um but i've started like reading to educate myself in acting and also like i'm reading this book at the moment um which i think is brilliant uh free plug for this way of the peaceful warrior by dan millman it's a pretty old book um i just recommended that book yeah oh my god yeah. read it oh my god um yeah yeah yeah, do you know, uh, my dad gave me that book and he said, this is a few years ago, and he said to me, this is the right time for you to read this book. So I think, mm. how old are you, if, if I may ask? Okay, 30, yeah. 36, I'm sorry. Holy shit. So, yeah, so I'm I'm 30. Um, Moran's more or less the same age. Like, this is a good time for us to read this kind of book. Because it's one thing I, I was telling a friend about it the other day is that I've tried, stopped and started trying to read this book so many times. And I think my mind was not ready to receive the information, but now very much able to receive the information. I mean, like, for example, this show that I do, I just sit and listen, you know, I'm just, I'm steering the ship, but I'm not. One thing that's interesting that's changed about this show is that I used to look at this, my, my notes and like, that was my Bible. And I was like staring at that. Like I have to ask all these questions. Oh yeah. Now it's more like these are conversation starters really, or prompts but sometimes I don't even look at this piece of paper. Like it, it really oh, yeah. depends. It, it really depends on what's going on, but this ability to be open to, to information, different um, ideas and such very much. I feel is, is something that happens over time. Like your, your mind just opens to these things and suddenly you're more prepared to receive that information and potentially who knows it could change your life so if you're in a growth mindset but let's right. suppose you're not in a growth mindset and like you know you reach 26 and you're like i know everything i need to know like, no. people are like that we're like it's just so sad people always see me in a book and they're like what are you studying in school and i'm like i'm not in school like i've been out of school for a while like but like they associate like well if you're reading a book you have to be in school like i love to learn like mm. the dopamine hit every time you learn a new fact like that's that's my crack, bro. <laughs> it's like trying to cram a new fact in there. That's my deal. No, no, no. You're you're onto something here. Um, because I think yeah, most people kind of probably assume like, oh, you're you're preparing yourself for something. You're you know, or maybe you're researching something. And it's like if you think about it, you you always are. I mean, even if you're just like reading for enjoyment, you know, it's it's still. It's, it's an experience in of itself reading um you lose yourself in it like mm -hmm. i've noticed about myself that if i'm really connected with the book and experiencing it properly i'm able to like visualize you know like the, this particular book is is like novelized right and 
I'm imagining these scenes in my head. I can I can see them almost. And it's 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 amazing because a lot of people, you hear these people say this a lot, don't you? That the book is always better than the film, and I mm, feel like the yeah. reason why people say that a lot of the time, <laughs> other than the fact that oh, it's not how I thought it was, da, 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 you know, it's a particular interpretation. Not everyone's going to like it, but with a book, I think it's a, it's an astute point. It's a it's a good point. Like with a book, it's up to your mind. You know, your mind gets to be the dictator of that, and. There's a lot of freedom in that. Like, yeah, the words will paint a picture for you, but it doesn't have to be exactly what the book is telling you. Like, for instance, you know, sometimes like it will describe certain colors and they'd be like, oh, this the person's hat was red, the building was brown. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that my mind does something different. It doesn't always necessarily take that information into account. It might, but it will paint its own picture. Well, and that's that's the point about like, you know, the psychologist Carl Jung had this idea that, you know, we're basically dreaming all the time. And this is you know, the idea. Yeah. And so but like, you know, with the idea that like five percent of, you know, this experience you're having is coming in from your retinas and the rest is all internally generated Im- imagery, given your expectations about the world. If we take that fact like seriously, so your eyes are really there to tether this internal model to this plane of existence so it doesn't go off into fantasy land. So your brain, and this is happening when you're reading, right? You know, if you're reading a good story, the author doesn't give you every single detail possible. They give you a few really good key details about what they're wearing, what the scene's like, what the emotional state is, and then your brain runs with it. If they're good, if they've written it in a way that's compelling, your brain will take the information and just start to run with it. And that's what consciousness is at this moment in time like you know your eyes are scanning around the room and looking for things and then it's updating your internal model about what you think is happening right but it's always just running with information in the sense that like like a vr headset isn't rendering every single thing you know in the in the in the universe right in the vr universe it doesn't render every single thing it only renders what you're looking at and so that's sorry uh, that's kind of what your brain is doing. It's, you know, taking like tiny little squares and then being like, okay, well, if that's that, then I can replicate, you know, if that's a black patch right there, I can replicate this over here. This looks like soil and this looks like, you know, mountain terrain. I'm just going to copy paste, so to speak. And uh, and that's how it's able to funnel that 11 million bits of information down to that 200 bit size story that our conscious self can attend to. So, um, yeah, but I'd say that. So you're saying when I go when I go for a walk in 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 the mountains, uh, my bo- my mind's just doing copy paste. Like what? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, and if, that's scary. And like this is the crazy part. Um, okay, so if you take your thumb and whoever's listening can take uh, their arm, stick it out in front of them, and just stare at your thumb. Right. So it's at arm's length, and you're staring at your thumb. So that thumbnail is representative of one percent of your visual field, and so you see well with 1% of your eye. The part of your retina that can actually discern fine level detail, color, like super, super good color, contrast, all that stuff is 1% of your retina. That's your phobia. That's what you read with. So every time you're scanning, you know, in a book, like you're, you'll notice your eyes are moving like every, every, well, like every second, obviously. And so it's capturing like what these little symbols are. And then, Mm. you know, surely you've gotten that. Have you gotten that email where like, the first word, I'm sorry, the first letter of the word is spelled right, but then the middle of the, the word is like jumbled, and then the last letter is spelled right. But you can still read yeah. the word. 
Okay. That just goes to show you like, you're not really reading when you're reading your, your brain's it's like predictive text in a way. It's like, I think I know what they're saying. You know, you don't actually read every single letter. That's how typos exist. One thing you mentioned, no, one Uh thing you mentioned earlier about like information. Yeah. Like I always think about this. A few years ago, um, my ex-partner's father was talking to me about something. I don't remember exactly what the topic was, but he was trying to kind of like reassure me about something, just make me calm down. And he said, look at this. This is information. This is information. This is information. He said like everything around you, everything that you interface with, everything at all is all information. And you like pick and choose what you take in, what you take out, etc. But it's all information. When you start looking at things like that, particularly when you have conversations like, oh, is this the matrix? Is this real? Is this that? Is I mean, I feel like it doesn't really matter if it's real or not. Because one truth of, of it is that it's all information and your mind is kind of doing its best to decipher all of that. So whether it's yeah. deciphering code on a piece of paper to trying to make sense of life or trying to read someone's body language, like it's always analyzing everything at all times and trying to make sense of it, trying to quantify said information. Mm-hmm. which on another many of many side notes is one of the reasons why I've spent a lot of time lately paying very close attention to what I choose to say, watch and listen to, because obviously, as we know, like negative content can have a negative effect on us in much the same way that eating some bad food will make you feel shit. It's the same principle. Like mm-hmm. I've noticed that my mindset has been a lot better and a lot more positive since I've been listening to this positive content. I've been focusing on more positive stuff. I've been sitting down and reading positive stuff. It's like I'm giving my brain good stuff, and in turn, it's making me feel better and reacting in a more positive manner through mm-hmm. the choice to receive good information. Yeah, I mean, it's that old adage, we are what we eat, but we eat with all five of our senses. And so, you know, like, it isn't just that, like, if you eat donuts all the time, you're going to get fat, like, it, what what are you eating with your eyes and your ears? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're surrounding yourself with toxic bullshit, like, I'm not surprised if you start to have some, you know, like a brain that won't leave you alone, because it's like, what are you feeding me? This is horrible. And it's just gonna act like a mirror, just reflect back what you're feeding it. And so, yeah, I've, I've done the same where it's like, you got to like regiment your diet of what you consume. I can't consume. I can't take in all the world's pain and suffering in the mornings. You know what I mean? Like I can't watch all the news in the world and be like, Oh dude, it just depresses me. Like the the news is a perfect example of this. (laughs) Yeah. And and then this is me just like trying to shut on the news, but like, let's be real. Like the news is not the news. Okay, if the news was the news, it would literally just be facts and figures and statistics written down and someone's just saying them, you know, like this happened at this time, at this place, right? But the news is not that. The news is trying to sell you stories. It's trying to paint narratives. Sometimes they're legitimate. Other times they're false, serving an agenda, whatever. That's another conversation for another day. The point is... You do know if you start to pay attention, you will notice that it is heavily negative. I noticed this 
at a very young age. I remember I was, oh, I must have been about 13, maybe younger. And I just sat down and decided to just pay attention and just watch. Like, I always used to stick on the news here in the UK. I, I grew up in London. And um, what we would have is the national news and the local news. So the national news, it was always the same thing. It would be like, here's how terrible the economy is. Here's the war that's going on in this country right now. Here's what the politicians said you should be fearful of in this particular month. And I noticed that it was just a running pattern of that. It was negative thing after negative thing after negative thing. Not one of those instances had something positive. Like, oh, well, said banker thinks things look positive in this given moment. Or a member of the opposition said, don't worry, we've got this plan in mind. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, there was never that positivity. Then it dropped to local news. Same thing. It would just Mm. be negative, 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 negative. And then sometimes they would end, or often they would end the program with a, good feeling good feel story Mm. like oh uh sandra in the local community has raised 500 pounds for dogs trust and here's a picture of her with um all the dogs she helped um have a lovely day from us at channel four good evening to you see you tomorrow and that was the pattern every single day and i was like wow a program that that lasts say two hours 95 percent of it is negative and then there's one five percent i suppose intended to just kind of make you forget maybe that you felt so bad about all the other stuff because you're like oh well as long as there's this one good thing going on in the world all that other (laughs) other other stuff you know it's not so bad and it's like don't get me wrong there's always terrible things going on in the world but there's also a lot of amazing wonderful good things going on in the world um it's but the news i I feel is designed to keep you in a perpetual state of fear and stress and anxiety and i know that's like quite a controversial thing to say like people will be like oh well you you sound like a conspiracy theorist it's not a conspiracy theory it's fact go watch the news and tell me how many positive stories you find or positive angles it, there's not a lot there it's it's quite distressing like as as just a program like forget all political leanings forget everything you think and know about the news just sit and listen to it and i guarantee you'll feel negative afterwards you'll feel depressed you'll feel miserable you'll feel sad like and it's i'm not saying people should ignore the news you know because at the end of the day we do need to be informed about things that are going on in whatever the world our country stuff like that but we also live in a, a time and an age where the information that we're receiving in many instances, we can't always be sure of. We can't be sure if this is real. Is this fake? Is this AI generated? That's a new concern we have to think about now. <laughs> <Right>. I know. <laughs> There's like different layers and elements to this that we always have to take into consideration. And it's not to say that this is a new thing, even, you know, like there's always been fabrications and news in media. There's people have always lied. You know, there will always be these things. But I feel if nothing else right now, what people should really be doing is thinking, I need to more critically analyze things. I need to think, is all of the information I'm receiving right now legitimate, real? Maybe I should take into account all given aspects of an argument, for example. Um, For instance, I refuse to do like debate shows. I don't want to do debate shows. But for the simple reason that to do that professionally and properly, you need to learn both sides of an argument fully you need to fully understand both arguments 
so that you can either host a debate and, and know both sides um, or if you're going to oppose someone and debate against someone, you need to know what they're going to say pretty much. So you're prepared for that. But in my point is you have to be fully prepared. You can't just kind of go walk into it because it's just not how it is. It's not appropriate. You need to know, you need to be informed, but I don't know that many of us are doing that. I think a lot of the time we accept things at face value. You'll notice certain people you meet throughout life, a lot of the time they'll go with the status quo. They'll go with like, okay, well, the rules say we have to do this. Or, you know, I don't know, this information says we have to do this. But there's been quite a few people I've met throughout the years. And this is kind of goes back to what you said earlier about how um, we discover things about ourselves through people we meet. I discovered that I don't, me at my core, I'm I'm a bit of a, I won't do what I'm told kind of, I'm not deliberately rebellious, but I I do kind of take exception. I'm like, okay, if they're saying A, B, and C, well, let's try Z. Because I feel like there's, and, and often if you ask um, about something that's not shown to you, you'd be surprised. Like sometimes people would be like, oh, yeah, you can do that if you want. Uh, it's not something we advertise, but it's something you can do. Because they don't expect everyone to go for that option, that hidden option, that thing that not many other people have Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? It's it's like yeah. um, it's a certain mindset. It's there's people that accept what's in front of them blindly. There are people that question things, but maybe will still go along with things. And then there are people that will question everything. Right. <laughs> yes, maybe not always for the for the right reasons. Maybe they're just being deliberately difficult. But I think it's good to always question everything as a as a concept because you know. You shouldn't just blindly accept everything you see in front of yourself. Um, you will be lied to. You are being lied to. But that doesn't mean you're being lied to in all given instances. It's just something to keep in mind. Like when you receive new information, question it. Question it completely. Question the source. Question why you're being given this information. Question where it's from. Question everything. Always question things. They tried to tell me at school not to question things. And now I understand why. Oh, right. Yeah. Not always. There were certain teachers who, you know, like English teachers would be like, you need to critically analyze things. But that was more so we could deconstruct Shakespeare, not so that I could question society at large. (laughs) You know. But I mean, that gets to the whole point of like, you know, like there's flow states, right? Which is like the good form of automatic where you're basically trusting the instincts and the body Mm -hmm. to burn this code out. Um, And then there's this automatic automatic, which, you know, we're just mindless. And sometimes we drive home like when we're meaning to drive to work, you know, like, yeah, I'm sorry, like (laughs) you're on a path and then you just you're trying to go to the store and then you end up driving to work and you're like, what the hell? Well, you're on automatic. You weren't even thinking. So where was your consciousness? Like your awareness wasn't there, but your body was manning the wheel. You know, like there's another altered state of consciousness for you right there, a trance state. Um, You've gotten into a little bit of a trance, but like, I mean, I guess I wanted to pull it back to like, was it your grandfather that said it was about information? Um, No, it was uh, ex-partner's father who we were just we were having a conversation i was living in europe at the time and um this is a man that like read a lot and educated himself a lot and interesting with him um was that he had learned everything through just teaching himself through books and stuff so Mm -hmm. like for instance he did a lot of like landscaping and creating 
uh like housework and stuff like that like as in working on houses and building homes and stuff but he just taught himself in books because uh, obviously society teaches you you have to a lot of the time like oh i have to go to university and i have to learn this skill and trade and it's like no you don't you, you that's understand. one way you could do it sure but you'll notice if you do go to university you're paying for access to information whereas you can get a lot of access to information for free now in this day and age yeah, you which you don't always... have. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You don't have a curriculum unless you know right. your own curriculum, but like people are paying for a curriculum and they're also paying for the networking. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I have so much value from my university, uh, Same. just the network, but uh, that's the biggest value. It wasn't the education I received. It was more the network I was, I don't know, the relationships I made basically. So it's exactly yeah. the same for me. Like I really, I've, yeah, I've spoken about university before, like on my show and on live streams and such. I don't completely discount it. I think that university teaches you a lot as far as like how to, for instance, read academic journals and how to get information from that. It teaches you a certain way of studying. As you said, it, it teaches you how to network and all these wonderful life skills. Also, it demonstrates to other people certain qualities and aspects to you in the same way that if I go to the gym and I take care of myself, that sends a certain message to people about where my level of dis discipline and mm -hmm. um, where, where my mindset is. I think going to university sends out the same message too. But again, it's not completely necessary in in the grand scheme of like tr where you can take your life and what you can do like there it's never just a b and c there's always other routes to do things and you know i was a couple of years into university when i realized that um the, at the time it was like you had to have a degree to do anything now it's just an option yeah <laughs> Sorry. That guy said something really wise, which is like, if you if you ask what the universe is, I mean, I think one interpretation you can make, and this is the interpretation, in my opinion, is that the universe is information. Like, that's how mm -hmm. you can describe it. And what is consciousness? Consciousness is an information. Uh, it's kind of an instinctual adjudication system. So you need to adjudicate between conflicting instinctual drives. This, you know, body that we have has an immense amount of intelligence in it you know women can this is so sad but like there's been situations where women get in a coma and then something happens right and then they get pregnant and then they can give birth completely while they're in a coma the they, they don't have to be consciously there the body can take care of everything like that's just to speak to the intelligence of the body and you know wow. fucked up the fucked up things that happen sometimes when women are in comas and guys are in comas, like, you know, that just happens, but it, I don't know. I guess I was just pointing to the intelligence of the body and what it, what it can do, but where was I going with that? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I get what you mean. It's, it's like instinctual. There's, Oh yeah. Your, so, your yeah, body you have... reacts to certain things. Right. And so you have, you know, a lot of uh, intelligence, like we don't know how we grow our arm hair or generate immunological responses or breathe really like you know like we can take conscious breaths but most of breathing is unconscious 
Um, so the body's taking care of so much. So what consciousness is, is really this mediation between a bottom up flow of sensory signals and a top down executive control of, I think I know what things should happen. So this is the up here is this top down, like instinct adjudication system, but it's all information and managing information and consciousness is ultimately about, you know, managing information, not overwhelming the operator with every single detail available. And that's why it's that 11 million funnel down to 200 bits instead of, you know, you're aware of everything at once. Attention is finite. It's limited. So, you know, we have to, our brain runs on different types of attention, but, um, you know, and then it's also interesting to talk about how the brain pays attention in different ways. Uh, have you heard a lot about the recent discoveries with the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere of the brain? Seven. Well, this, this gets to like, this explains so much. And so there's this Brit named Dr. Ian McGilchrist who has really done the best work um, laying, out, laying out like the functional differences between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And just to parse the subject real quick, uh, back in the 70s, there was a lot of information released about the right hemisphere does like, you know, uh, creativity and um, I don't know, like special magic shit. And like the left hemisphere does Matt, like that's all been debunked. Mm -hmm. Um, but so there's a more nuanced discussion that's happening about what these two hemispheres are up to, but the real interpretation to take away is that you have a left brain inside your head and a right brain inside your head, and that these brains are independently conscious to some extent, and so that they pay attention to the world in different ways. And so, you know, courtesy of the right hemisphere, we have this broad, open, sustained kind of attention that's likened to like a floodlight of awareness, you know? And then the left hemisphere is getting more spotlight of consciousness. So more like the spotlight um, or a flashlight moving around, grabbing information that it needs. And so the way Dr. Ian McGilchrist describes this is like, you know, you'll notice this lateralized brains, um, asymmetrical brains in, in almost every organism. And so even down in birds. And so his idea is like, you know, a bird trying to make it in the world has to be, has to like focus very intently on the that seed that it's trying to grab out of this, you know, pebble and grit and sand, it has to focus very narrowly and intently on that seed, but it needs to keep its right hemisphere and its left eye open for any predators that might come around. So it's paying attention in two different ways. Um, and so that's the idea of why we have two different brains in our head. And uh, once you really start to understand that idea, it, it opens up so many doors of, well, that's why this happens. And that's why this happens. And one, one example being like, how are we able to wrestle with ourselves or like, like what's the name of the person in that movie? Like, I can't remember my favorite actor's name. It's like, you know, well, you have two sides of you. We can reminisce with ourselves. That's a weird thing to think about. Like, you know, sometimes I'll be in the shower and then my brain presses play on a memory I didn't know still existed, effectively entertaining itself with itself. Like who pressed play? I don't know. But like, it just goes to show you, like we have, you know, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, they contribute to give us this conscious experience we have. But sometimes people have strokes where they lose their left hemisphere, or they lose the right hemisphere. And uh, by studying those sorts of case studies, you kind of understand more about how consciousness is this complex orchestra being played, and you need both hemispheres. And if you lose one, pray that it's the left hemisphere, and not the right hemisphere. Otherwise, your ability to navigate reality will be severely severely destroyed if you lose your left hemisphere you'll likely lose language um which you know but yeah 
It's interesting. There's, there's quite a few different things in there that were caught my attention. Okay. In particular, this idea of like your mind replaying certain memories randomly. Sometimes I look at that and I'm like, there's got to be a reason for this. Maybe it's um, you're being trying to be taught something from, from the past. That's quite a basic take on that. But other times it's like, I'll be having a genuinely good time, happy days, everything. And then some terrible memory from many years ago comes up and I'm like, well, I've already like dealt with this memory. I've already like reconciled with this memory. Um, this is in the past. The past doesn't exist. It's just the past. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't bear, it doesn't have any bearing on my life right now. Like for example, if, if there's like a bad, like bear with me, if there's like a bear, uh, a bad uh, like memory, like of something that happened and it was my fault, and that's like what I tell my mind is, well, I was a different person then. So this mistake that I made and I've moved on from is because this is the person I was then. And like I was not able to be mature like how I am now. And and like now I would approach this particular situation very differently. And I think back and I'm able to look at that and go, well, these were all the circumstances at this time. This is how my mind worked at this time this is the best that I could do in this particular moment. Hence why this mistake exists. Mm. So when the mind replays and starts doing that, I'm like, to what end? What's the point? What are we trying that's to good. achieve here? I don't know. That's great, man. I mean, that's, do you meditate? No, I've tried. I can't turn off my mind. Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a practice and like no one ever just turns it off, but no, you know, I know, uh, but I know I, I've yeah. read like, like for instance, that book I mentioned earlier, it talks about like how true meditation works. And like, I know it's supposed to be like, you're, you're tapping into like everything around you and, and, and feelings you're paying attention to your breathing, you're paying attention to how you feel you're within yourself, all this stuff. But when I say I can't turn myself off, I mean, like I, the the thoughts distract me the you know like i'm working on trying not to be a prisoner of my mind as far as letting my like mm-hmm. thoughts guide me so an example of this recently has been for me like when i woke up this morning i felt bad i felt depressed and so i looked at that and normally i'd be like oh and i'd let that mood ruin my day or whatever dictate my day run my day basically i am a prisoner unto my emotions but in this moment, I was like, no, no, that's that's not how that works. You know, I understand maybe that I need to eat, go out for a walk, maybe hit the gym. So I did all these things. And wow, mind blowing. I felt better. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes when those those feelings come up, you've you've got to reconcile with that. You need to address those those feelings. You need to talk to someone. You need to. I don't know, exercise, uh, do do something like, like what I said, like you, sometimes you just have to sit with there with your thoughts and, and just think about things, you know, be out in nature and just, you know, it will come, the answers will come to you. Um, but I find the, my point with this is that you can control that. You don't need to be in a position where your emotions just control you and how you feel and your thoughts control you. Like it, you can control that but it takes a certain degree of like self-awareness on your part. And you have to really consciously think like, this is not something that controls me. I control this. I I am in control of this. And 
bringing it back to meditation, that's an area I still struggle with that. Because while I can do that in my everyday life and carry on and move forward, I find it difficult with meditation because that's an area where you're sitting trying to somewhat disconnect from your thoughts and just be there and sit with yourself and be there with yourself and what comes comes but i just can't turn off that noise it's like you know you shut the window you can still hear the traffic it's like that mm, i got you well the the ultimate goal of it and i want to acknowledge and congratulate you because you're doing Thank something you. that's very um in line with meditation what you said was like you know you've um you basically inserted this like question, like what's the game here with these thoughts? What are they trying to get me to do? And so, I mean, that's, that's an exact like meditation that you should think about. It's like, you know, like you notice these thoughts keep coming up about like, let's just say it's this ex-girlfriend. So it's like, okay, I keep having, I'm noticing thoughts about this ex-girlfriend. What is it trying to tell me? What's the game here? You know? And a lot of the times it's just distraction. The remembering self, a part of your brain is trying to be like, hey, think about this. Think about this. It's trying to steal the spotlight of consciousness away from you. Now, the brain ultimately has two essential modes, in my opinion, thinking and perception. And when you talk about this left hemisphere, right hemisphere divide a lot, you understand that I'm going to steal a line from Dr. Jill Bolt Taylor real quick. She says, although many of us think of ourselves as thinking creatures that feel biologically, we are feeling creatures that think. So, you know, yeah. So we are, you know, like the brain has three functional layers. You got your reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and then, you know, what we call the outer undulated uh, cerebral cortex. That's the most human part of our brain. But all your sensations pass through your limbic system, so your mammalian brain, before they get to, you know, percolate up to the outer undulated cerebral cortex where we're able to do complex things. Things like abstraction and math and, you know, language, et cetera. Like, you know, this wrinkled surface on our brain, this exterior, this is what really makes us human. And, but we're able to think, right? But we're only able to think because we feel first. So thought is a second order process. And so what you're trying to do in meditation is, you know, your left hemisphere, 95% uh, of people, I believe, uh, houses your um, language centers. Right. So if you can shut off your language centers, your left hemisphere for a minute or two, 20 minutes, that's what we're trying to do here in meditation. Stop the left hemisphere from incessantly talking in your head. Then you just get to pre perceive, just perceive, which is an act of creation. Right. Because all perception is all, you know, um, you're perceiving something. This stuff is getting binded together in your brain. That's the neural binding. Right. And so I'll, I'll like cap it with this. You've seen a Necker cube or the Rubens vase before. It's like a vase face it, or it's a duck rabbit. It's a duck. If you look mm -hmm. at it one way, it's a rabbit. If you look at it one way, yep. it's, um, it's a, or it's a, it's a three-dimensional cube, but it's drawn on a two-dimensional sheet of paper. We call that a Necker cube. Now, if you look at this cube, or if you look at this duck rabbit, it's like your brain will either see the duck or it'll see the rabbit. You can't see both at the same time. It'll be like duck, rabbit, duck, rabbit. It'll, it'll waver between the two. It'll waver between which is the front part of the cube and which is the back part of the cube if you're looking at a Necker cube. Um, and so what that gets to is like perception is an act of creation. And so meditation ultimately is practicing perception or creation without the intrusion of thought coming in and ruining things with I want, I need, I deserve, I'm owed, I expect, uh, why didn't this happen? 
And, you know, when is this going to happen? Like, these are thoughts that like, they have their own game and that's what you're doing. You're like, what's your game here? But you can silence them eventually. You learn how to do that. And then you just practice perceiving, which is the perfection of now. It's, and you get to, I don't know, it's it, it just shows you who, the complexity of who you are, I think. That's why I do meditate, um, could do it more, but it helps, you know, like defrag your brain a little bit. Close something, those browser tabs. Go on. <laughs> something you said there, which fascinates me. I mean, all of this fascinates me, but <sighs> this concept that we are feeling creatures first, thinking creatures second. The more I've spent time acquiescing to everything around me as far as like wh what I think myself to be and what I actually am, I, it's interesting. Hmm. So I'm a person that's very much driven by my intuition, by how certain things make me feel. However, I do understand that emotions and feelings betray you mm. in much the same way that your thoughts can betray you as well. So what is the truth in all of that? It's a mixture of both. It's a combination of both. It's understanding who you really are and reverberating within that. When you see mm. people at their happiest, it's not because they have loads of money. It's not because they have, I don't know, whatever, 15 cars. It's none of that. It's because they've able to fully understand who they are and engage with things like flow states, engage with things like that. Like, for example, one of the main characters in this book, I keep mentioning this, but it's just a really good book. Oh, cool. um, his name's Sok or Socrates. Um, that's what the other character names him. He's a guy that works in a gas station and he's like, he says he's 96. <laughs> he's not. But he's he's just a guy who kind of like laughs at ordinary people and pokes fun at them and stuff. But not in like a mean-spirited way, more in a kind of like you, all of you are missing the point. And he's trying to like get this main character to understand like what the real purpose of life is and like what it all really entails and to kind of understand, for example, the importance of spontaneity and the fact that like, you know, you need to learn to like laugh when it rains and not be like, oh, this is, this is ruined my day. Everything's terrible. Da, 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 da. It's like you get to decide your reality. No one gets to decide that for you. You get to decide that. Mm -hmm. But it does take a leap on your on your part to 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 recognize that and to receive the information around you and try to find like the positive line in and things or try to understand like, okay, this has happened. Maybe this thing isn't bad, but how do I, the person, take this information? I'm sure you've heard the expression, um, life is 80% what happens to us and 20% like how we how we react to it right or just no maybe it's the other way around 80% yeah mostly it's like life happens and we can choose how we react to it basically and it's like mm -hmm. we, we we can't control a lot of the things that happen to us but we can control how we react to them and that can also steer the ship as far as like leading us to more positive things because people will pick up on that they'll be like huh okay you went through this but you're reacting in a positive way. That's interesting. And, hmm, and like, maybe, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's like, um, mm -hmm. that speaks to people, especially in the, in, for example, if you're in a room full of people and you reverberate positive energy, people are more naturally drawn to you. Whereas if you're negative and withdrawn, 
and you feel terrible and you desperately want people to come near you, but they won't because your demeanor and your energy is off. You're giving a very, you probably don't even realize the energy you're giving off. And you so desperately want this thing. And that's why they say, like, if you want something, you often have to do the reverse of it, which always used to fuck with my head. Like, for example, I want to be loved. I want to be with someone, right? But I won't get that through being negative, through being miserable, through feeling entitled. I'll get it through being positive, through living my life and giving enough the right energy. And it will come when I'm not expecting it. Yeah. Yeah. Do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I want to talk about your book. Okay. You're, again, we mentioned it at the top of the hour. It's called Consciousness in a Nutshell. It's got this amazing graphic of like a guy in space. It's just, I don't know, it just, it's from a visual perspective, it just kind of stood out to me. But then I started like becoming fascinated with this idea of, of how you've studied consciousness. Walk us behind the story behind your book and how it came to be. Okay. So uh, I spent like, most of my life gearing towards trying to be an astronaut. And then I realized it was too much of a smart ass. And then uh, I was like, okay, well, I'm good at acting and I uh, like writing and stand up. I'll just go for that. So I was like in regional theater from like third grade all the way up until let's call it 25 years old. So 25 years old, it's 2013. That's when I had my first near death experience. I was so in love with psychology. Um, like I loved the, I was fascinated by the human brain ever since I took my first psychology class in college um, and just been, you know, just hooked by the subject. But it was always in pursuit of how can I use this knowledge about the brain to create a more convincing character on stage or, you know, in front of the camera. Like I just wanted to observe human behavior. And so that was where my life was. Then I had this near-death experience that, you know, I liken it to if if our theory is correct, if consciousness at the level of experience is a layered uh uh, orchestra of you know a bunch of teams of neurons and systems of neurons acting in concert with one another it was like that near-death experience was like i saw uh all the layers of consciousness getting unticked at random and then when my brain rebooted so to speak it was like they got ticked back on and it was chaotic and shuffled and it was a crazy experience right but it showed me it gave me the curriculum i needed to write this book it was like okay you saw something. I saw primary visual processing for a second. Like, you know, the idea, like what we're seeing right now is filtered, processed reality. You're not seeing raw reality. You're not seeing those two dimensional images, like one two dimensional image that's coming from your right eye and one from the left. You're seeing them stitched together after it's, you know, already been, well, it's already like processed. It's edited together. Uh, I saw it before it was edited. Um, and so there were moments of seeing this, like seeing through the fabric of reality, seeing what some people would call ultimate reality. And uh, I just caught moments of it. And that was enough to see the idea that would be this book. And so the idea takes its form in the sense that like, if you want to explain what consciousness is, you have to talk about transformations in consciousness. So the only true way to talk about it, I believe, is the multidisciplinary explanation of the study of consciousness and it's told through the vehicle of a story. We figured out kind of early on that like, you know, this was a very complex subject, really heady, hard, hard to access sometimes. So there's like 10,000 facts you need to somehow cram into one person's head in order for them to have this aha moment, this revelation of, oh, that's what consciousness is. I've been thinking about it the entirely in, in an entirely wrong way. So in order to get people to that revelation, 
you have to somehow jam pack 10,000 facts into their head. And so the story is designed to help get those facts in, but it goes everywhere. I mean, it's ultimately a big story about evolution because, well, let me ask you this. When someone says the force of evolution, what does that mean to you? Inevitability. <laughs> and Okay, cool. What else? Mm, um, just progress, I suppose. You okay, know, so evolution it's, is progress. Yeah, it's 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 like it's happening. It's never not happening. Great. Okay, it's always happening. Okay, these are great things. Now, is evolution? Is it like wind? Like what is it? It's not a physical thing, is it? Or is it? I suppose it's conceptual, but it's also something you see. I mean, you don't see it necessarily happening in real time. You can see it happening in real time in some instances, but a lot of the time it's either really, 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 really slow, or sometimes you can speed it up. Like the best example I can think of is, let's say I put a potted plant on my windowsill and I start watering it. If I film it over the course of, say, six months, and speed up that footage, I can see a plant grow really quickly. But if I mm -hmm. watch it, if I sit there and watch the plant grow, it will take a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. However, that is something I can observe, which is relatively fast. Now, if we're talking about like the evolution of like, you know, human beings or animals, that's can take millions, hundreds of millions of years. And that's where it begins to be a lot longer. Yeah. Okay. So you brought up a good point. Um, all right. So evolution of plants. We can talk about that for a second. So there's this, the wild cabbage is called Brassica alarica. Okay. So in the last 10,000 years, we've taken the wild cabbage and through artificial selection, uh, we have, you know, farmers not exactly knowing what they were doing, but they were practicing evolution. They were practicing artificial selection, we're selecting this wild cabbage for different traits. And now what do we have? We have kale, we have kohlrabi, we have broccoli, we have cauliflower. These are all the same thing. It's all wild cabbage. Within 10,000 years, we've taken one plant and we've morphed it into many. Okay. Brussels sprouts are on there too. I don't know if I said that. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then like, do you know, Americans right, the... like Brussels sprouts? Sorry, just on a side note. Is that, is that something that's big in the States? Cause I can tell you here, it's we like do. kind of a, it's a joke. It's like 50, 50. Really? Yeah. It's like Marmite. People love them or they hate them. Most people. It's hate actually them. popular. Yeah. Like people do <laughs> bacon and Brussels sprouts. It's like such a big common combination. Interesting. Okay. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. I'm a big they... food guy. So I'm just like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Me too, man. I'm yeah, I would class my, classify myself as a foodie. Um, but yeah, so we were talking about evolution. And so like the, um, the, uh, I'm sorry, the Brassica Olerica being transformed into all those different things. Now, I guess what we try to walk people towards in the book is, is redefining what the force of evolution is, because we can think about it in this abstract way, like, okay, evolution is um, really, it's, you know, Darwin worked out the mechanism of evolution in like 1859. And uh, that's what I think people think about a lot. It's like, oh, there's selection pressure and there's, select, uh, there's sexual selection. And this is what evolution is. But the one of the lines we open with in the book is a quote from Sir Julian Huxley, which goes like this. 
evolution has become conscious of itself. Love that quote. Now, he didn't mean it in the way that I'm about to say it, but we, if you read this book, you, you get to the idea, there's more revelations than this, but it's not that evolution is some abstract weird thing that started on this planet at least three and a half billion years ago. We are evolution incarnate. Like we are evolution. I'm talking to another point of evolution. If the, the archetypal image of evolution is a tree, so a tree kind of like a hand is spreading out its luck in five well, it's called these five branches, right? Five different directions, many different directions. It's spreading out. What does it mean to be alive? And so over here, it expresses itself as a monkey. Over here, it's expressed itself as a human. Over here, it's expressing itself as a banana. Over here, it's expressing itself as um, a, a cave swiftlet. You know, like, but it's all coming back to the same tree because everything's all connected. So, um, yeah, and you said evolution is something that's always happening. Yeah, now that's great because like a lot of people think that evolution is something that started here on this planet. But when you think about what cosmology, like the Big Bang cosmology says, it isn't a description of how the universe began. It's a description of how the universe evolved. So the Big Bang is, you know, like, are you really super, super familiar with this? Should we go into this or what do you think? Please go into it. Okay, cool. So for anyone like who's curious about what the Big Bang was like in 1929, Edwin Hubble swings his telescope up to the sky, sees not only that there's a bunch of stars, but that every point of light are these are galaxies and they're moving away from one another. Back then, we used to think the universe was static and fixed, but he's the one who discovered, no, these galaxies are moving away from one another, implying that the universe is getting larger and larger. It's expanding rapidly, right? It's even speeding up in its expansion. So you rewind the tape back and everything converges to one simple singular point. 13.82 billion years ago, they call that the singularity. So from complexity, we rewind the tape, it all comes back to unity, which is the singularity, right? So, you know, and then they get super, super descriptive about their their timestamps of like when the force of gravity first wriggled away from the, uni the grand unified force, et cetera. But like the point is, is evolution started then. It started the second the Big Bang banged and it's been evolving and getting more complex and more complex and more complex. So the way, how does the universe com produce complexity? Well, of course, what it does is, you know, um, when the universe first banged, right, there was just hydrogen, helium, and trace amounts of lithium. And then these, over the course of hundreds of millions of years, the hydrogen gets pulled together by the force of gravity. They get clumped together so, uh, so compacted that these... Um, Atoms of hydrogen start to, you know, bump into each other, creating friction and heat. They eventually hit 10 million degrees Fahrenheit. Their protons start to fuse and they create the second element in the periodic table, which is helium. So hydrogen converts into helium, right? So, and that's, and it releases a tremendous amount of energy. That's how our sun is powered. It's a nuclear furnace. It's nuclear fusion is what's happening inside of a star. And that's how we get all of our elements. Every element that exists everywhere right now was once made inside of a star. So, you know, stars, they convert uh, hydrogen into helium. They convert helium into more complex elements. And then during supernovas, that's when they explode into really complex elements like gold, platinum, and lead. I'm sorry, uh, silver, platinum, and gold. Um, and so this idea is just that, like, you know, you if you take this in its entirety, you see that the universe is information. 
this information has been steadily getting complex, more complex as time has gone on and through the process of stellar factories, you know, stellar, I'm sorry, through the process of stars, we get more complexity, more chemically, uh, a more chemically diverse universe through stars. And then eventually um, on our planet, all these molecules and everything have linked up in such a way that an organic replicator is born. I mean, but but the idea is that like you are the universe and the universe is you. You are evolution and evolution is you. The quick pitch. I remember my dad once said to me that uh -huh. consciousness is we are we are experiencing consciousness that we are a combined consciousness expressed in an individualized way. So we are all connected, but we're experiencing life in an individualized context. And he said that he expanded on this more recently with me. He said that every time I see a person, I see a part of myself. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, if I see someone I dislike, what I really see is a reflection of myself. And I was like, what? But what he meant was that like, we're all, we're all connected even if we don't want to admit it. This is why it's so important to be like nice to people and kind to, to every human being and, and grant everyone, everyone the exact same courtesy. It's hard, easier said than done, but that's why, because we're all connected. We are all one and the same. Your dad sounds like a brilliant man, dude. Yes. He's ginger. <laughs> huh? He's, he's, he's ginger? He's ginger, yeah. I always <laughs> relentlessly mock him for that, but yeah. Too bad he doesn't have a soul, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Dad. He said it, not me. Uh, no, but this this concept, you know, that we are all connected. We are the one with the universe. Like, I agree wholeheartedly. Like, I don't know where I really sit on the idea of like God or a creator or any of that stuff. I'm basically just like, <laughs> I'm open to all possibilities. Let's put it that way. Um, but when it comes to science and understanding life and everything we do reach a point where it begins to become more spiritual and philosophical for example the question i was originally going to ask you is what do you think caused the big bang or was it a creator was it just an anomaly like to to, to understand that we are all emanating from just a as you put it a singularity a point in the universe where there was nothing, just this one point, and then suddenly there was everything. But what mm -hmm. caused that nothingness and everything? How can nothingness be a thing? How can that exist? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. This is why I love just asking questions, because you'll, ne you'll never get the answers. But at the same time, it's fascinating, is it not, to answer, ask those questions? Uh, it is. Um So, you know, the Buddhist concept of reality, and they're very reluctant to give a conceptualized version of reality because they don't think that reality is something that can be pinned down because reality is maybe it's a process not a thing right can't be pinned down um and so there's this buddhist philosopher named nagarjuna who had this idea called shunyata which is the void as nothingness and so you know a lot of people think about nothingness and they're like oh well nothingness is nothing but it isn't so you know i guess the easiest way to describe the nothingness is two eternal forces um, and then there's like a line down the middle, like, you know, a diagonal line going down the middle. And uh, that's nothingness. So you have like 
everythingness on one side and nothingness on the other. And so nothingness is really like you could conceptualize it in that form. But if you look at what it really is, the interaction between everythingness and nothingness is a thing too. And so it's what you would think is nothingness actually produces a well of creativity because between everythingness and nothingness, there's this interaction, which is everything. And that's life. We live in the interaction between everythingness and nothingness. So you could say consciousness is what mediates between chaos and order. Consciousness is what mediates between perceiver and perceived. Um, but yeah, that's something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. It's, it's true. Because it, it, it brings me questions as well. Like, for example, what's the point? Of? existence anything yeah which uh, i know this is cliche but bear with me what i mean okay. is right now we're sitting asking each other questions theorizing about something we'll never truly understand but we spend our lives fascinated because that's the type of people we are we're just fascinated we're interested in these things we want to keep exploring this because maybe it gives us a better understanding of ourselves of the universe everything we're interacting with it's just fascinating but there's also a lot of people that don't care that will live their life and have a very straightforward life and maybe will never ask these questions. Now, again, that's fine. There's like, I have zero judgment on that. I'm, I'm not a judgmental person, but like, I do look at that fascinated because I'm like, huh, is that because they've accepted a certain way of life? Is that because they're not interested? Is that because they don't see the point when someone gets to a point where they maybe unfortunately take their life Sometimes I've heard that people take their lives because they truly just don't see the point, not because of a individualized perspective of like, there's no point in my life. They mean in life in general. Mm. And this, this kind of blows my mind, this idea that, well, yeah, like what is the point of life? What is the point of continuing to go, continuing to try to what end to what, what is the point? Hmm. Well, I mean, if you're asking what the meaning of life is, I, I definitely yeah. <laughs> about that one. So I can I can give an answer for that. Um, oh yeah, here yeah. We go. Here we go, guys. The meaning of life by Jay Nelson. Let's go. All right. So that that question says, "What's the meaning of life?" And so, the, like the operative word is meaning. So let's take that apart. In order for something to mean something, right, there has to be at least two things in existence, right? Something has to mean something to something else. So you have to have at least two things. So before you can make meaning, before meaning even exists, there has to be some sort of relationship or interaction. So relationship precedes meaning. You can't have meaning without relationship. So when you're talking about what's the meaning of life, really, there's like a nested sub, sub questions inside that. And one of them is, um, you know, like what comes before meaning and, uh, ex you know, experience comes before meaning. Um, you need experience before you can make meaning. But before you can have experience, you need to have relationship like an organism and its environment. That's the most fundamental relationship I can think of, right? And so what this gets to is that we're all born into some sort of relationship with our parents, our grandparents, our ancestors, the future. Like I just had a son eight months ago. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And so, but like it just, it, it points out the fact that like, He's born into something that he can never get out of. He's born into a relationship. Same as me. Same as you. 
we're all born into some sort of relationship that we can't get out of. And even if you don't care about the future, you're still in relationship to the future. And all the decisions I make on this planet will have effects on what this planet's going to look like for his generation and his and his son's generation. So like when you ask the question, what's the meaning of life? It seems to me that we're really here to figure out the best way of operating in this world, the best way of managing, building, growing, destroying relationships, like, because inevitably that's, what's going to happen. We're going to mistreat ourselves. We're going to mistreat someone else and we're going to mistreat the planet. Like these things are givens, but with each interaction or iterated game or day, uh, we figure out better ways of acting in the world. And you and me right now, we're sharing knowledge and experience. We're trying to one up, you know, like, not like I'm trying to one up you, but like, we're trying to both level up and by sharing experiences, we figure out how to relate to ourselves and the world in a better way. It's true. Like I do this show because if nothing else, I always learn something from my guests and I understand more about what it means to be alive from various different angles and approaches and stuff. I mean, this show has featured business owners, actors, musicians, um, content creators, live streamers, film producers, you know, spiritual people, psychics, doctors, Uh professors. It's literally had everyone. And the one thread that connects them all is that they're all understanding life in a particular way approaching life in a particular way but they're still trying to chase life and understand life in certain in a certain specific manner and i just find that amazing you know mm-hmm. that me and you sitting at the opposite sides of the world coming from completely different backgrounds can understand each other and connect on certain levels but also come at it from completely different angles and therein learn from each other from that experience mm-hmm blows my mind every single time um also thank you for actually answering the meaning of life question <laughs> i i just expected like a, a quite a like you know fun like oh okay let's let's break this down have a bit of fun with it but you actually gave a, a pretty awesome answer um Thanks. obviously these questions are answer, questions that can never really be answered but i feel like it's still fun to try and 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 like make our own understanding of, of what it what it means like uh, my personal opinion is the meaning of life is to make your own meaning, to to find your own purpose, your own goals. Um, we spoke earlier about, you know, being in touch with your feelings, your 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 thoughts, and and like which order that comes in. I feel like a lot of existence and, and being is is understanding yourself first and foremost, and what you're here to do. You know, for so long, I I grew up thinking, oh, I need to get a you know, a nine to five job and I need to do this mm. and I need to do that. And da, 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 da. and actually my life has been everything I've tried to avoid. Um, I'm a freelancer. I, I pursue acting. I pursue content creation. I'm constantly stressing about trying to find work. And it's also really exciting. Mm, <laughs> it's right. also like, oh, where am I going to be next? What's going to happen next? Clearly that is a sphere I'm supposed to be in and I feel more comfortable in. In the acting sphere, all my friends are very weird and so am I. And it's like, it's that's how that's where I feel most comfortable. And okay. once you begin to accept that, you begin to accept who you are 
life does get better. It doesn't necessarily always get easier. Things get tricky. Life is always a challenge and there's always challenges. But if you are true to yourself, it's like an epiphany hits you. I'm sure when you started actually pursuing this book properly, because you mentioned in that that you were pursuing various different things. You had this profound experience and you were like, this is a book. This is something I need to write. This is something I need to get out there. This idea is something I need to put into the world. And then I imagine when you started pursuing that thing, maybe I'm just theorizing here, but the doors started opening up a, a lot more. Like you start working on it and suddenly things start making a lot more sense than they did before. You know, maybe not everything runs smoothly all the time, but there are some constants. Like my life right now is all over the place, but there are constants like this show is always a constant feature in, in my life that continues to educate me, continues to feel like it's going somewhere. I don't know where it's going. I'm just along for the ride, but it blows my mind. I can see the progress over time. I remember when I first started, I mm. could barely hold a conversation. And now I'm talking to amazing people such as yourself about things that I am largely ignorant of, but it, come on, man, it's amazing to be able to, to, to get to talk to such a, varied variety of people and learn from said people and mm. apply that to my life and hopefully my viewers and listeners get that too and i mean just in general the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and understanding it's like there was a quote i read recently that said like there's two types of fools there's the ignorant fool who thinks they understand everything and there is the aware fool, I'm paraphrasing, who understands that he is a fool, mm -hmm. but still pursues the understanding of knowledge and everything. And that's where I feel I'm at. Like, I understand that I will never know everything and that it's it's amazing for me as well to be like in one scenario, I, I, I can offer advice, I offer wisdom, I can, you know, um, provide insight. And then this conversation right now, I'm ignorant. I know nothing about these things. I have basic understandings, but that's nothing. You're a person who studied this, researched this, written a book about this, and is able to offer like all these different insights. And so I sit as a spectator. And it's mm -hmm. that's amazing to be to be able to do that and to take those different roles in your life. You know, like for instance, you mentioned being a father. That is a new experience for you. And suddenly, well, I know very little about being a father. I know what society tells me a father should be, but I'm understanding this relationship and, and making my own understanding of what it is to be a father and what I will be as a father and, and so on. And it's like, that's a whole other journey. And there's all these little mini journeys throughout life that we where we discover things about ourselves and we apply knowledge that we've learned over the years, but then we put our own understanding over it as well. Mm. It's just incredible. It really is. Um, yeah. I could talk to you all day, but I'm conscious of the time. It's been over two hours. So I'm going to wow. ask you, a yeah, I know. I'd, literally, <laughs> I'd, I'd love cool. to, I definitely would love to have you back on the show again in the future, if you'd be willing, because it's just been an absolutely fascinating journey. Yeah. Uh, well, that's awesome. To hear. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm glad. Um, but I ask every guest this, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What's the best advice you've ever received? Yeah. Okay. Um, I worked with a Buddhist monk once. Um, I was, uh, struggling with, um, like an eating disorder. 
uh, binge eating, stress eating. And um, anyway, you know, like all these problems kept manifesting in my life and um, Western doctors were not really able to help. And uh, anyway, this um, kind of like a healer I worked with who happened to be a Buddhist monk at one point told me a quote I'll never forget. He said, there are two paths in this life. There's the path of pain and there's the path of suffering. You can choose any path you want, but your body is telling you something. And what are you doing? You're not listening, Jay. You're not listening to what your body's telling you. So you have extended pain ahead of you. We call that suffering. And that's the that's the path you've laid out for yourself. Now, if you want to heal and figure out why you come home and decide to eat three meals back to back, like I can't tell you that information. You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. But um, like, that's what we're trying to get to. Like, why do you feel the need to have to do this? And like, you know, because you can listen and have an easier life or you can suffer and go the route you're going. It's, it's, it's an eternal situation. And I've never stopped thinking about that one. <laughs> There's something interesting in the answer that you gave, okay. which I can relate to. As you began to tell the story, it's like you were reliving it for a second because it's obviously yeah. a painful memory for yourself. I had something at the beginning of this year, which is why I decided to quit drinking. And oh. it was a combination culmination of events leading up to that point. And I'm, ha I'm happy that it happened. But every time I'm asked to relive it and like talk about it, like there's a disconnection in the sense that I am six months removed from this and I'm in a positive space mentally, physically, everything. But it's still like a like a sense of pain there, always. No matter how far it it could be, like six months, six years, sixty years, there's always like a connection with that. And sometimes I wonder if that's drink. no, no, no. Um, so like, oh, basically, I'll, I'll quickly explain. So I I quit drinking, um, mostly mostly to be honest, just for health reasons. I wasn't having as much fun with it. Uh, it'd just be like, I'd have one or two and I'd feel like dehydrated the next day. And it's like, well, this sucks. Um, oh, but yeah, this is not fun. But um, actually what it was is I sort of broke down and what happened happened. I lost my job. I, it was, it was, it was bad. And it was a long time coming because I wasn't taking care of myself. Like I was doing things like going to the gym, working, also doing everything I'm pursuing in my life, but it was too much. Obviously, when your body is out of balance, you know, you mentioned having an eating disorder, it's like your body's out of balance and therefore everything in your life is out of balance, you know, and you can't be you, the best version of you until everything is in balance again, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of that comes down to choice and, and, the, and the choices you decide to make. So for me, choosing to stop drinking was not because I was an alcoholic or because I had a problem. It was a decision that was a long time coming, but it was also like, this is profound for me because it's something I can build off upon. I can build on top of this. Like, hey, of course I, I miss it. I miss the social element of it, but I've since been out and drank 0% alcohol and it's the same thing. It doesn't, it feels the same. I'm still doing the same activities. I just don't have the alcohol. I don't have the initial feeling that I used to have, but I don't particularly miss it either. Now, but when I have to recount that that moment, that moment of pain that my um, what I call like a, a low, a, like a particular low point, I'm like, okay, 
that happened that's in the past i've moved forward from that point but yet the reliving of it still it's still like a tinging feeling or like anything in your life you think about a bad time that's happened in your life like it's i suppose it's um your memory keeps a record of that and it's always difficult to to revisit but at the same time i think it's important that it still makes you feel that way because it's like well that's where i was and this is where i am and you remember that journey and you remember how you got here and you don't ever take it for granted and that's quite powerful i feel in many ways yeah and it it also kind of speaks to like the point of like you know we feel a certain way about our lives and we think about our lives in a different way and these two minds can be on different pages and this is the nub of psychopathology you know like mm. people like let's say they feel what they did in iraq in the iraq war was fucked up and then she yeah. doesn't happen but then their thinking mind says well the commander said it was okay my job said it's okay i get paid by the government it's legal like i yeah i killed someone but i had to it was did it for my country you can put all the thought lists you want on this side your feeling mind says you destroyed another human life and that is not right with me so like they're not on the same page and that's the benefit of therapy is connecting thoughts to feelings you know and like you're like i'm out of control and i'm i'm i have some sort of addiction it's like why is that why is that happening well it mm. could be i mean it could be like for example like why was i eating three meals back to back when i'd come home from work well i hated my job and it was like i'm eating because it's something i can control i can't control that i have to work this shitty job but i can control that i'm going to eat all this food it's about control <laughs> and addiction is oh go on no go on please I was just going to say, um, you know, it's, it's about control. Right. And then I think the grandest revelation of a, like a psychedelic journey, or we were talking about earlier about transcendent or mystical type experiences is getting your identity, like understanding who you really are. Your dad sounds like he understands who he is in the sense that yeah. what he said to you. And I heard you say it on another podcast uh, earlier, <laughs> too. it's such a great line, man. I see myself in everyone. Now that is like a Buddhist perspective, but it's it's just a true perspective. And why is it tr true? I mean, you may know this, but like in the United Nations, if you walk into the United Nations building in New York City, there's a poster hanging on permanent display, which shows the same ethic of reciprocity, the same, um, you know, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Like, or, yeah, the same golden rule rendered in all 13 of the major religions. That's interesting that we all say the exact same line, but in a different way of treat everybody like it was yourself. Now, what does that speak to? You could argue that it speaks to some sort of metaphysical reality that we truly are all one. And that is what a transcendent or mystical type experience is. It's making that realization. And so that it's not just an intellectual thought of like, well, that's an interesting way to act in the world no you feel it in every cell of your body so that's why josh and i would be like very like we're active proponents of psychedelic plant medicine because they can give you reliably give you this experience that you might not normally get and uh unless you did spend 10 years meditating or something like that and then you'd be lucky if you got it but yeah it's interesting about that quote as well is that mm -hmm. like whenever i used to hear that I immediately used to think, as I imagine many of us do, oh, that's that's to do with me. You know, like I need to treat people 
as I would want to be treated as in, you know, like, oh, I'd love to be treated nicely. So, you know, I should obviously treat other people nicely. But then, as you mentioned there, it's so much more profound than that. If you start to look at it from the greater perspective of we are all one. And suddenly it's like, oh, I can't hurt you. I'm hurting myself. This is why, for instance, when when I talk about things like forgiveness, I like I don't I don't carry resentment towards people. I don't I don't carry it with me because I know it destroys you. You know, yes. ultimately I forgive people because everyone has different reasons for things. And we are different people in different moments. People can hold grudges towards you. You know, I know I'm sure I have people I know I have people that hold grudges against me for mistakes I made in the past. But it's like I'm not that person. I am not I choose to be more than mistakes. I choose to be a sum of all experiences in my life, good and bad. And ultimately I choose to be the best that I can be. And that's good enough. That's always good enough. So long as I'm always trying to be better and learn from mistakes and grow. It's only bad when a person just decides to sit and not do anything about what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. When, when you, when you, and, and, that, and that's a big, it takes a lot. Like, I know I'm kind of just saying like, oh, you just choose to do it. Like, I understand it's, it's harder than that. Like I said, I said this to a friend of mine recently at the gym, like I go there not to look good. Mm. I go there because of how it makes me feel. I go there because it reminds me that while I might not have everything in control in my life, this is one thing I can control. And it's so liberating feeling to be able to control that. And it made me feel good. And it teaches you, oh my God, guys, go hit the gym, work out, do whatever you need to do. It will teach you so many life lessons and reinforces so many positive thoughts in your mind. And like being able to be in that positive mindset will in turn mean that you're able to make better decisions in your life because of said fact. If you're not driven by emotions, if you're just driven by motivation and, and pushing yourself like i'm sure you got the best of yourself through making this book and what you're going to do off the back of that in the future you know it's like you realize wow i can do this i've done this imagine what else i could do yep and the journey just continues yeah you know the the buddha once likened the world to an ever-burning fire a constant becoming right and so you think about that and you think about what I was trying to gift, like the perspective of like, we are evolution. So if being is forever a becoming and you are becoming like you are being something, you are, you're on a path, you're on a journey, you're on some sort of hero's adventure to do something. You're clearly on some sort of adventure to do something. Some people aren't on that path right now. Right. And how do they feel? They don't feel like they've connected to something larger. They feel like they've they're isolated. They feel alienated. They feel cut off. And what has cut them off? The ego. The ego, which is a part of your brain. It isn't you. It's just a part of your brain. It's just a part of you that says, nope, I'm not that person. Nope, I'd never do that. I'd never say that. They deserve that. I'm going to punish them subconsciously for that. These are questions you you discover in some meditation sessions you watch your mind long enough you're like oh, i have a preoccupation with punishing people 
with making them know that they fucked up and who and and who they messed. I'm sorry, I keep swearing. <laughs> no, please do. But, uh, but like, I mean, yeah, I'm just being honest. Like, I'll notice, like, you know, somebody wrongs me, and they're like, you know, like, then I I notice their phone call, and then it's like, then you notice that you didn't answer. It's like, huh? Why am I being like? Why am I judging? Why am I holding on to this pain? I should just answer this phone call. But it's 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 this meditation and awareness that allows you to like look at your actions and look at your thoughts and realize, okay, something's going on here. You like you don't have to like identify with it, but like. There's anger here. There's jealousy here. There's, there's not compassion. Why isn't there compassion? Why can't I see myself in this person? That's like a good meditation to think about. And something I think your dad would be like, you know, like that's the antithesis of judgment. Why can't I see myself in this person? Because then you connect to them and you can be compassionate and see you're a reflection of me. I'm a reflection of you. And we're trying our best and I'm not perfect. Holy shit. None of us are, man. But, you know, it's like I remember when, I went through all of that and I called my dad and the first thing he said to me was don't be so hard on yourself. Ah, uh, yeah. And that's the reality. Don't be so hard on yourself. It's okay to make mistakes. Like I know like right now in society, it's very much like you can't make mistakes. You're beholden to what happened like 20 years ago. And it's like, listen, <laughs> you can't be born perfect. Perfection does not exist anyway. If you make mistakes, it is your responsibility to learn and grow from those and to not repeat them twice. If you repeat them, you have not learned from the mistake. Mm -hmm. But you're allowed to fuck up. You're allowed to make mistakes, but you have to be accountable for them. You can't pretend that they didn't happen. You can't blame other people. But you don't have to blame yourself either. You just make a note of this like, okay, this happened. And this is how I reacted to this. Therefore, I choose not to react to this in the manner that I did previously. And I choose to be better than this. And I choose to move forward from this in a positive way and be better than I am, that I know I can be. You have to like talk positively to yourself and tell yourself these things. And it's like, I think it's hard to do that. I know it's hard to do that. Um, I punished myself for a long time about things I've done in the past. And it's like, where does that really get you? And equally, when someone is annoyed at you and they get angry at you and they they take a revenge on you. I, I had it recently, a friend of mine. Uh, I won't give away the scenario. Um, something happened major in their life and they were considering taking revenge on someone. And I said, this isn't you. Mm. And I could see like the you know the cogs turning in their head and they were like and i was convincing them not to do this thing but i was exploring the reasons why not to do this and how they might get some initial satisfaction but ultimately when they'd look back at the event they would realize this was beneath them yeah and it wasn't the best reflection of them and that uh, this other person's behavior whilst despicable and everything that's them that's their journey when people wrong us it's very easy to to want to f to get some sort of redemption to, to uh, not redemption that's the wrong word to get some vengeance to, you know but that that won't give us anything and it's got nothing to do with like turn the other cheek or whatever it's like no it just won't give us anything it won't make us feel any better if anything it makes us feel worse it makes us feel empty because we expected to feel better and we don't 
because we've either brought ourselves to the level of that said person or we've just punished the world expecting bliss and instead you know we get what we put out into the world you punish the world you'll be punished back you put positivity into the world you'll get it back you might not get it straight away and i know it's frustrating and a lot of people listening to this will be like well where is it where is it why is it not happening if you haven't got it yet more work needs to be done okay a few final questions for you what's the okay. biggest what's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far biggest life lesson i think it would just have to be the the profundity of everything's related everything's connected um and so you know like i guess it went into the meaning of life thing just the idea that you can't have up without down north without south top without oh, i said down <laughs> you can't have black without white self without other organism without environment and so when you see things in in eastern philosophy in eastern philosophical context that can't exist without another like positive and negative can't know electricity without positive and negative so really you know positive like they sound like separate things, but they're connected, positivity and negativity. So like when you realize that, you know, yin goes with yang, all this, like then you realize like you can't have a hundred good days in a row, just not going to happen. Like you have to have the rainy days to appreciate the sunny days. You have to have the sweet to appreciate uh, the sour to appreciate the sweet. So everything works in a relationship. And when you understand that, then you realize what life really is like, you know, it's just it's a wheel. It turns and turns. You don't really go anywhere. And that's the lesson of nirvana is let go because we have experiences. We are eternal. You know, we are, I think you talked about this in a different episode, right? You're talking about like that we are energy and that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. We are energetic beings. But if, if what we truly are is energy, then that is what is eternal. Are you going to have the same memories that you have in your next incarnation well, probably not, but, um, you know, like the, the point being is that like energy is recycled and, uh, it just goes round and round. And so, you know, like, what do you want to become? That's, that's the real idea. Cause like, this is an infinite playground. We're playing with finite organisms right now, but ultimately we are infinite and that's what you can connect to. That's what you do connect to when you're connected to something larger. It's that which cannot be named or pinned down or talked about adequately. You can't you can't hang a name on it like God or Allah or whatever because it's infinite. It it can't be conceptualized or put in a box because that would be to define it, which you can't do. So we just call it the infinite thing and just realizing that you're that. So that going like, sorry, this is long, but it's the idea that everything's connected, everything's related, and that there is no difference between me and the universe, I am the universe and the universe is me. And you could extrapolate this even upwards, which is like, there is no difference between the life force of the universe, AKA some people might call God and myself. Like we are all expressions of the universe expressing itself as that fly, as that tree, as you and me, like, like what your dad said, you know, like, uh, or actually I'm going to back it up to another quote. Um, he said, life is so life is experiencing itself so the universe is experiencing itself subjectively that's bill hicks lines the universe is experiencing itself subjectively that's his line i love that line 
and oh, that's what we are. Man. Bill Hicks, man. What yeah. <laughs> lost treasure, that guy was. Wow. How do you know? Dude, I've gone back and watched Bill Hicks. Come on, okay. it's amazing. Like, are you All kidding? Right. They're cool because, okay, just a quick side note here. Like, comedy, I've always preferred this more storytelling version of c- comedy. You know, your, your Dave Chappelle's, your Bill Hicks, you know, it's that's always been more entertaining because it's social commentary expressed in a particular way, laughter. Something that is euphoric, feels us, it's relatable, it's fun. But ultimately, it teaches you something. If you go back and you watch Bill Hicks or you you look at Dave Chappelle, especially now, they're teaching you stuff, but they're not doing it in an annoying kind of condescending way. They're just trying to have fun with things and educate you at the same time. And it's oh, it's just beautiful, man. Like I mean, Bill Hicks's lessons these days still ring ring true, and he's been gone such a long time, and it's just. Fascinating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Particularly loved his uh, show where he was dressed as a cowboy. That was that's some good shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Life is a ride. It's just a game. That's what he would say, and I I would agree with it. That's that's the lesson of Nirvana. It's just a ride. You don't have to. And and that's why like people like Josh and myself would promote the the I guess the safe use of um, psychedelic plant medicines is because they can give you that experience and then once you get that experience identity informs how you pay attention to the world and so if your identity is messed up because you know you grew up and had some unfortunate circumstances and then you know like we all have a desktop experience a user interface right well if you load up your desktop with bunches of icons then it's going to slow down your computer and if you do things in a similar way with your head if you don't let go if you hold on to resentment and never forgive you're holding all these icons on your user interface of your brain. And that's not a great way to live. Um, the best way to live is to be present with people. But yeah. As we draw things to a close, do you have any upcoming yeah. projects or final thoughts that you'd like to share? Um, yeah. So my wife and I are super excited. Um, next in two weeks, less than two weeks, we premiere our hardcover edition, our first cover, our first hardcover edition of our book. Um, so that's coming out in one week from today. And then we also premiere our, uh, I'm sorry, an escape room themed around the book at the psychedelic science convention, 2023. Yeah. Congratulations, man. That's huge. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. So my wife's been building it in our garage (laughs) for the last like four months. Um, and so we're just about to debut it at this, uh, the largest psychedelic gathering in history. Um, it's going to be like well over 10,000 people at this event on, they're all like, you know, psychedelic researchers or in the field, uh, practitioners and that sort of thing. So, uh, we're so stoked to do this conference. Best of luck with that. And also just best of luck for the future. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me and sharing such wisdom and knowledge, man. Like this is good. What you're doing is good. Thank you, sir. And to all the listeners of the Christian Reed podcast, as always, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.